The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is at eye level? A reductive ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. And now the moment all you metal maniacs have been waiting for. You're listening to Weird Seeds Inside the Book, where a central guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Mario Lamberto Papa, here on the Online Network. almost of the third season of Weird Seeds Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. This week, we discuss two men who started off as prominent assistant directors, and in the case of the latter on-screen bit player, later to move on to carve a niche all their own in the annals of Italian cult cinema. Mikko Suave worked his way through the Italian film industry, first as an on-screen actor in minor roles for the likes of Fulci, Castellari, Diodato, Cozzi, D'Amato, and even Lamberto Bava himself, before becoming an AD on several Argento, Bava, and D'Amato affairs. 
But it was a documentary on Dario Gentry that brought him into the directorial seat, from which he'd go on to create four of the most distinctive and visual horror films of the late 80s and early 90s. Lamberto Bava would cut his teeth directing Second Unit and serving as AD on his Fate and Father's productions for over a decade, also putting in time under the likes of Dario Argento and Ruggiero Diodato along the way, before graduating to the director's chair on Shock alongside his father, Macabre, and the justly fated Blade in the Dark. Working in tandem with Dario Argento, Bava would make his name with the Demons films, putting out a few more notably odd efforts like Delirium, Blast Fighter, and Monster Shark, before moving into telefilms such as the excellent Burbido Diallo series and the Alta Tensione series. And let's not forget a body puzzle. So join us as we return to the ever-flowing stream of Italian cult cinema to discuss Lamberto Bava and Mikola Suave. Uh, so I'm your host, Doc Savage, and with me is my ever-patient co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello. Hello, this is the ever-patient co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you doing tonight? I'm alive. Oh, that's a pause. I'm doing, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. <laughs> uh, busy week, but uh, I'm doing well so far. Week's almost over. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like one of my weeks. Uh, like I said, at least... Uh, it's better than you could say a couple of weeks ago. So the fact that you're here and moving on and alive and everything's good is a plus. Yeah, everything's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, we're talking about two people uh, tonight in tonight's show that uh, I, I really like a lot. I mean, you're not their entire body of work, of course, but you could say that for everybody that we, t- we discuss in this show. But uh, uh, Lombardo did some really, really cool movies. Um you know, he's uh, what's the word? Uh, I, I don't I don't want to say inconsistent because he's all over the place anyway. Right. So there's no consistency to his work. And you can say the same for Suave. But uh when he's good he's really on. But uh you know, we're not talking you can't compare these guys, you know, and, and the genre they work within, you know, to like a David Lean or Kubrick or something like that, but when he's really good and firing on all films, like I don't like it as much as I do, something like Demons. Okay. It's just, it's just wow. You know, there there's so many things in that picture. It, it goes for me. That movie goes beyond guilty pleasure. Um, Suave's a little bit more problematic, but we'll 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 get to that. And, yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, my thought was because it's much shorter. Uh, I might actually want to start with Suave. Um, that's fine. Basically, uh, Giovanni Lombardi Radice, who was the very first guest on uh, Third Eye Cinema back in oh god, it was like 2012, I think. So think of what a score that was. Uh, <laughs> uh, he told me that Suave was not only a sensitive guy and a pleasure to work with, but that he's primarily a painter and that this likely influenced his brief directorial filmography, uh, which, if, as you'll see when you look at it, uh, tends to emphasize the visual very much uh, without a hell of a lot to back it up. He's very much uh, style over substance, and as Giovanni would probably say, uh, he really doesn't give a shit. That's all he wants. Uh, in effect, he was an 80s director in that uh, Miami Vice sort of a sense, or uh, like a Nagel painting. You know, It looks gorgeous, but mm-hmm. it don't see a fucking thing. You know, there's nothing underneath the surface, but that surface is beautiful. 
uh, and you just can't find anything nowadays that has that sort of a sheen. And even before that, it was kind of unique to that era, I think. Um, so very much style over substance, but the style is outstanding at points. Uh, basically, he had been in a whole bunch of things uh, as an actor, and just that's it. Uh, he was in stuff like I don't know what the greatest battle in Little Lips were. That was back in '78, I guess, is when he started out. But he was in Alien Terror, which was also known as Alien Two on Earth. Uh, City of the Living Dead, of course, for Fulci, which is also known as Gates of Hell. Uh, Day of the Cobra for Margariti. Uh, he was in Absurd for D'Amato, and he was also in Caligula 2, the untold story for D'Amato. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Very yeah. so. Well, the, the, thing, the thing with him, uh, he's in countless more titles, too. The thing with him is he had a, like a little, he was blessed when he was younger. He had a little Tom Cruise thing going, like for a long time. He always looked the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was in his late 20s when he started appearing in, in pictures and bit parts, and uh, he was doing that to his early 30s, at least. Yeah. And he always looked the same. He always looked like he was 19 to 22, you know? Yep. <laughs> and, I, and I think that helped get him these parts, too. Also, he had a, a bit of a... Um, only like one or two roles, I think. Uh, I recall seeing him in. He was a bit of a bastard, but that's as directed. I think for right. the most part, I recall him being kind of sensitive. Yeah, he was usually like the nice guy or the boyfriend or, you know, the, the worst you get probably that I'm thinking, okay, he was in the New York Ripper. He was in Atlantis Interceptors for Diodato. Uh He was in Black Cat, uh, which was uh, Demon Six or De Profundis for Coetzee. And I think the worst thing, if you want to call him like, oh, look, he's being evil here, would be in Demons, where he was just kind of the, the mysterious guy in the mask that gave out tickets to the theater. Um, but even there, well, you know, was he really... Well. Yeah, 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 I mean, was he really like the bad guy, or was he just, who the hell knows what he's supposed to be? It's very nebulous. They didn't really spell that one out. Uh, so, you know, he, like you said, he was always... He had a unique look. I mean, he was very... Italian, not in the sense people in this country think. You know, you usually think in terms of like, you know, swarthy. Um, I, I wouldn't even hazard a name. Uh, whereas over there, you find a lot of guys that are straight out of Italy that are skinny, um, you know, curly hair. Uh, you know, what do you want to say? Um, we run into them a lot in like the malls and things like that. You know, they're always trying to sell you crap, like this, like this kiosk they put up around Christmas time or whatever. And you get those guys like you know trying to shove perfume in your face or or look at this thing that spins up in the air or this this race car, you know, RC car or whatever. Else. Uh, he's like one of those. Yeah, yeah, he had a slight. Well, I, I have to assume he's probably from one of the lower areas of Italy. So would that be Sicily or Naples? And so they tend to have like a, a Middle Eastern palate. <laughs> And so, you know, it's, you know, I think that worked too as well for him. And um, I just had a laugh because you said Sicily or Naples. Like, well, that's completely different. <laughs> Napolitan is the northerners, and Sicilian is down south. <laughs> I, I got both of my family, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So if the 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 lower the lower the people that were indigenous to the lower parts of Italy tend to have been darker, thinner. Right. Um, and, uh, kind of, like I said, like, they have that Middle Eastern, you know, you wouldn't mistake them sometimes. 
for that. Yeah, or even it's, Cuban, dark Cuban. It's not like yeah. the kind of thing people think of in this country when you're thinking the Sopranos or the Godfather, that kind of shit. You know, not that Sicilian Italian sort of thing. It's it's different. It's there's something. There's another strain there, like you mentioned. It's almost like Greek. I mean, honestly, you, you see a lot of Greek guys yeah. kind of like that. Um, North Africa. Uh, you know, that sort of, you know, like I said, Middle Eastern, you know, somewhere between Turkish, Arabic, Greek, Italian, all, that whole region of the Mediterranean, you have certain strains of, you know, the way people look and whatever. And he was definitely that sort, you know, the curly haired, skinny, sort of tall, um, you know, uh, he fit that wiry. type. Yeah, wiry, right. exactly. Uh, and he did pop up in a lot of these films. I named uh, some of the more uh, interesting ones that people would know from people like D'Amato and Fulci and Cozzi and Margariti and you know so on and so forth. Uh, he also did some work simultaneously, uh, maybe a couple of years in because he had done most of his acting first. Uh, but by the time he got to New York Ripper, all of a sudden he's working as second unit and assistant director. He probably actually walked in and you know, says, whatever, here, we want you to cast you because you've got to look. Uh, and he's hanging around with these people all the time. He's like, you know what, I think I want to try X, Y, and Z. And, you know, being Italy at that time when everybody was kind of in on it. The, the deal with Italian films that makes them kind of special, especially from this period, is that they would go when they had a technical problem, which happened a lot, obviously, because these are low budgets. They would go for plot ideas or how to fix this problem or whatever to everybody in the cast. It wasn't just like, okay, well, let's go to the, the special effects crew and talk to them for half an hour with the director, or let's let's have the cinematographer sit here and talk with you know the gaffer and try to figure out you know the lighting. They would bring in like the script girl and the guy who like the gopher and everybody on the set, you know, the, the carpentry guys, and they would all kind of pitch in and have sort of an equal voice to some extent. Uh, it was very um, uh, egalitarian, and that's why you get such often crazy but interesting ideas and honestly such good work because there wasn't this stratified bullshit that unfortunately we're going back towards in this country where you've got a, a rich elite of assholes that think that they're more important than everybody else and everybody else is just dirt and nothing gets – you know you just keep going in a Mobius strip as a circle because this five, you know, 2,200 assholes – have no ideas in their head. So it just keeps regurgitating and regurgitating. And you get the kind of films we have nowadays and the kind of pop music we have nowadays. It's just garbage getting recycled over and over. Nobody's coming in with an original idea. So because of this uh, atmosphere and endemic, I really get the impression that he just kind of said, hey, you know, I've been in these movies with you guys and I'm kind of interested. Oh, yeah, sure. Come on over here. We'll give you some, you know, uh, here's how to work the camera. You see how these guys are doing. He's probably hanging around with the cameraman, asking questions, or whatever. Then here, you know, why don't you do some second unit? That's usually not that important. You know, we have some send somebody out to do that. You know, like a a second hander or whatever. You know, give it a shot. See how it goes. And he was probably successful. And then they kept going, and eventually became assistant director and so forth. So he was on stuff like 2020 Texas Gladiators. He was on Tenebrae with uh, Argento. Uh, he was a actor, but also. Uh, I believe he did work as an AD on Blade in the Dark for Lamberto Baba. Uh, he was in Endgame. He was in Blast Fighter for Lamberto. He was in Phenomena and Demons and Opera. Uh, Phenomena also as an actor for Argento again. Uh, he was – anybody remembers this thing, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which was popular for about oh, a yeah. year when it came out. Uh, he was involved with that. He was AD. Uh, Brothers Grimm all the way up in 2005. I don't know how he got involved with that one, but there you go. Uh, so that's well, also Gilliam. So yeah, they yeah. probably got something going on there. But so from most of that stuff, we're talking about eighty three, eighty four, eighty five, uh, up to eighty seven or so. And during that time was when uh, Massachusetts, you know, Joe D'Amato, 
said he took a chance on him and he says, Hey, you know, you've got some talent here. Uh, I've got the money. Let me, you know, you have this idea for the film because he came to him with something. And he said, Okay, why don't you just make this? Um, actually, first, he did the Dario Gento's World of Horror documentary. That's probably where his, his real proving ground. Uh, you know, there was a couple of these. Coetzee had made one, uh, Suave had made one. And then later on, they started doing things like you'd see from who knows, AMC or some crap that weren't that great. But back in the mm. 80s, you know, basically people who wanted to know about Argento, maybe see some of the scenes that were cut from the releases that we got then. Because, you know, that was back in the days and everything was getting edited and you got the, the special releases that were dumbed down, like, you know, the hatchet murders or whatever the hell, you know. Uh, that's how VHS days were. It was really kind of hit and miss. You never knew what you were going to get. It wasn't like nowadays where usually what you're getting on DVD and blue will be the most complete print they can cobble together. Uh you know, from surviving elements or whatever the hell. At the time, they really didn't give a shit, and they were just editing and censoring. And you know, what do I got on the floor here? Fine, this will work. You know, uh, so in those days, to see those extra scenes, to learn more, to find more of these films that were not easy to get or see, people would go to documentaries like this. And you know, I don't remember which one of the two was better or worse between the Suave one and the Cozy one, uh, but uh, I have to say the Cozy. I mean, for me, I thought it was the Cozy one. Um, it seemed a little bit more coherent. Was that the one where they had this fake thing where he was in a movie theater and parts of it were staged and Argento was kind of walking around the movie theater? No, it's a Suave one. I think. That's the Suave one, yeah. Because uh, I remember getting a kick out of that just because it was strange. Uh, but in any case... I think uh, also they came too close together, too. You know, that was a problem. Yes. They were like they were two, years years apart. two years apart. Yeah, yeah, and it was like, get another one? You know? And <laughs> it was kind of hard to say the same thing differently. You know? the, exactly. Uh, so anyway. Know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, from there, you know, from having done this AD work, from having, you know, been on the set and being an actor and being dependable and likable and whatever else, and then having shown that he could do this project all by himself, this documentary – uh, again, working with Argento, but still, he, he did this on his own. Mossy um, Chase says, "Hey, you know, I'll we'll, we'll bankroll you on this one," and he made a film called Stage Fright. Now, some people say this is the best thing he's done. I really think it's the next film he does myself, but it's a matter of opinion. Uh, depends what you're looking for. Uh, Stage mm-hmm. Fright is basically the Miami Vice of slashers, uh, or Jalo slashers, if you prefer. Uh, it's, again, all style and zero substance, but it's fun. Um, you know what you get out of it? Picture, remember, like, you know, with the Miami Vice, one of the big things, they had Glenn Fry there doing Smuggler's Blues and all that shit, and you belong to this mm-hmm. city with the saxophone and all that. So here he opens up, there's this crazy thing with some woman dressed up like Marilyn Monroe with the, you know, the funny dress blowing in the air, playing a saxophone over the opening credits, and, you know, people dancing around, and it's really kind of, um, it's, it's worse than like a Duran Duran video. There's all this like quick cutting and very staging, very strange. You're like, what am I watching? Is this a music video? You know, what, what the hell is this? Uh, and then it turns out that the whole thing is about these actors who are rehearsing a play about a killer, uh, and they've got this really ditchy you know, queen of a director, and he's nasty, uh, who is uh, David Brandon, who was in... Uh, what, what was the film that he did for Argento that was such a big deal? Was that... Um, uh, ooh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage? No, no, no. Which one was Brandon? Brandon? Was Brandon in an Argento? 
I could have swore he was. I don't uh, think he may have. Okay. He worked with everybody else. Yeah, he was <laughs> kicking around a lot back then. I really thought he was Rajanto, but who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, and Giovanni Maradici is in there. He has Brett. And Barbara Capisti is in there, who you will see in most of uh, Suave's films because that was his girlfriend. And, you know, she was kind of cute. I liked her a lot. Uh, and then she would branch out and start doing films for other Italian directors. So she had a, a brief uh, but memorable career in Italian horror. And basically they're doing this play, the director's being a real bitch, uh, basically. And they're all having a hard time with him. And then in the middle of this, and he's like locking him into the rehearsal space and everything else. In the well, middle of this, also, there's, and there's also though the character of the uh, the shady, overweight, dressed like a '40s gangster uh, money guy who might might yes. have his money coming from the mob. Yep, who's bankrolling this this production? Was like, oh, we 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 got to do something about this. We got to do something about this. Now we open soon. Yeah, you know, he's kind of putting pressure on the already jittery, queeny. Almost. Uh, I got the impression he was high on coke because he was that kind of a, a sweaty, pale, jittery. You Brandon's know. character. Yeah, yeah. Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Probably Maybe he was high. anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, in, in terms of the film, I'm saying, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in the middle of all this, while this is going on, and they're kind of like trying to do their thing here. A real killer escapes from the local nut house and you know winds up finding these people and starts to kill everybody off for real. And of course they're locked in. I remember there's one thing, and it was kind of real killer. I couldn't remember who it was at this point. Irving uh, Wallace. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Irving Wallace, and I was like, oh, that's really close to Edgar. Yeah. And that and Irving Wallace, I've written a couple of. He was an American author. I think it was American. And he wrote a couple of books people were really reading years ago. But I was like, that's a strange name for a killer. And they keep throwing that name out a lot. Escape yes. killer, Irving Wallace. I'm like, yeah, so? <laughs> but it gets, like, partially Hitchcockian, but partially, like, annoying. You're like, wow, you people are fucking stupid. Because um, there is a, a long period that I recall, where these cops are sitting outside in the parking lot. And remember, this is a theater, right? So all you've got is a stage door. You open a stage door, there you are, you're right there in the wings, and there's the stage, right? It's like open rehearsal space, basically. And they can't open this fucking door. Okay, it's locked, it's a metal door, but they can't open this door to get away from this killer. This cop's sitting there in a car eating a sandwich the whole time, don't even know what's going on. Like, who's the bigger idiot? These cops? Or Yes. <laughs> Who's the bigger idiot? These two cops sitting there eating a sandwich, staring at the door and doing nothing? Uh, or these idiots, like, you know, ten of them in the, in the theater here, they can't get out while this guy's going around with a chainsaw. How the freak you got a chainsaw? I don't know. Uh, you know, an axe. You know, every damn thing that's available, all these props. And, and you know, hacking everybody to pieces, basically. You know, and up in the rafters and down in the wings and... Um, you know, they have those trap doors where they have, uh, you know, the actors can do stuff underneath the stage, you know, down there. But... It's stylish. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And in a lot of respects, it's annoying as shit. And it gets pretty bloody, but it's really, really, it sets the tone for what he was going to do. And I think that when it came out, there was an alternate love and hate of it, uh, which I think may still last to this day to some extent, where some people were like, 
well, this thing is beautiful. It's crazy. It's like, you know, there was, especially at the time, oh, there's nothing like this. This is just like, you know, a music video. It's like Miami Vice. It's like whatever. Uh, and yet you've got a lot of people saying, well, yeah, but there's nothing going on there. And it was stupid. Um, but, you know, it did win some awards, I understand, or some horror awards that he, he took in for this. Um, you know, there's really nothing else to say about it. I mean, the guy's running around in this, like, owl mask, which is kind of silly. And there's these real stagey scenes. Like, at one point, he's sitting in this throne with, like, feathers floating around him with, like, the bloody axe in his lap, waiting for, you know, the, the effective final girl, of course, is Kapusti, uh, to go and find him. And, oh, wait, I've got the key under my lap, and I'm going to pretend I'm asleep, and she's got to get it. Again, trying to be very Hitchcock. Uh, or at least a Palma, but it's just so over the top and ridiculous. Uh, I still enjoy the hell out of it. I made the mistake of showing it as probably the second Swabby movie I showed her to my wife, and you know she was just like she hates slashers anyway, but she's like, oh, this is gross. Why are you showing me this shit? <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah. The, the the thing the thing with both these guys we're going to discuss tonight is that when while they're very artistic, uh, they tend to be. Brutal. There's some brutality in stage fright. That, that's a bit. Oh yeah. It's still a bit much. Um, well, when he pulls um, the key out of the guy's throat, I mean, you know, it's it gets yeah, pretty well, gross. That. But there's also a very an overall surreal mm-hmm. whole thing going on because the um, uh, our killer is walking around with a big giant owl's head mask, which yep. is you know it's enormous. That. <laughs> it's enormous. How it stays on the guy is, is something else. Yeah. And why was it named Aquarius? Because the original name of this thing at the time was Aquarius. I'm like, no, let's do the Aquarius. <laughs> it's a bird. <laughs> I don't know, maybe because it was a cool title. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's somebody's birthday. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but exactly. no, it's, it's a very visually striking movie. Uh, it's it's a great debut. Um. Right away, it got accolades, though. People right away recognized it as being different. Exactly. Um, despite its, its if we're gonna, if we're gonna call them faults, despite its faults, um, it it was different. It's, it remains different too. Um, yeah. No, no doubt about it. And um, it kind of stretches a little bit as it gets toward the climax because it's. What is obvious to us, you know, it starts becoming one of those, why, you know, you start talking, why why are you doing this, you know, you you know you don't want to go that way or that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Exactly. But then there's that very, talk about surreal, there's that very unusual tableau of death on the stage. Yes. Toward, toward the end of the film, which is which is just well, he probably scary. did steal that from something like Happy Birthday to Me, or you know, because remember yeah. a lot of slashers did that where they have the room full of uh, dead bodies waiting for you. But yeah, I mean, in this case, it was more stylish because that's his style. Uh, he mm-hmm. was almost the the '80s music video uh, was his. Uh, he didn't make any, as far as I know, but that was kind of the milieu he was shooting for here. And I should also say that beyond being produced by uh, Masuchese, Joe D'Amato, um, it was written by George Eastman, of course, who was a frequent uh, D'Amato regular and uh, compatriot. And it had a really – it's probably one of the best, if not the best, Simon Boswell scores. Uh, really kind of moody. Again, we were talking about last week about Carpenter scores. That same aesthetic where it was simplistic but – you know, sort of tangerine, dreamy, uh, 
what else would you compare it to? Uh, a lot of keyboard drones and sort of out there, and yet it can bring the tension sometimes by contrast. It's like, well, why is this so relaxed while this is going on? And other times just because it's so bizarre and you know something's wrong and it's kind of sitting on the edge of your seat. Uh, he also did some stuff for Phenomena too, if those of you who uh, listened to our Argento show back way back when. Um, so is there anything else you want to say about this particular movie, or do we just move on? Uh, we can go on to the church, La Chiesa. Yes. La Chiesa, the church, also known as Demons 3, because everything was like a Demons movie back then for some reason. Um, it's still very stylish. It's still very 80s, but I think this is his best film because it took the elements that really worked about stage fright, and it takes a lot of Argento because Argento was producing, and actually he did the screenplay as well with Suave. And with Emperor Baba, who wasn't credited, and with Dardano Sacchetti, who wasn't credited. Uh, so it was kind of a gang effort here. Um, actually, has Argento, as Argento, this was, I think, her first role ever. Uh, she was in this as a young girl, uh, wandering around there. Uh, Barbara Capisti again. Uh, Giovanni Lombardo Radice again. Um, Suave himself shows up in the thing. Uh, Capisti's sister, Olivia, shows up. And it's a title named Thomas Aranya, who I believe was more of a Spanish horror guy, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who is the lead in this. But the thing about this is it takes the uh, stylish sort of slasher elements and a lot of what Argento was doing at the time, because remember he just came off Suspiria and Inferno, and he was now doing a little bit different stuff like, you know, uh, Tenebrae and Opera, and brought it to this hyper-mystical and very, very gothic. Um, yeah, I mean, to some extent, you could say it borrowed from demons a little bit, you know, that sort of feel, but again, that was very modern. This was not modern. I mean, yes, it's modern-day people. There's somebody getting married, there's uh, the ones there trying to restore this church, the other guy's a priest. You know, there's all kinds of things going on, but there's a lot of dark, occultic sort of elements. Um... You know, at one point, there's even like a devil hand that pops up. And the, the, the church is built over, you know, one of the gateways to hell, effectively. Um, and it becomes a little bit Prince of Darkness in that respect. Uh, from what we were talking about Carpenter last week. Uh, but without being so trippy. You know, he wasn't going into theoretical physics and things like that. It's This is more of just, once again, a stylish Italian horror film that moved into the realm of the Gothic, that moved into the realm of the uh, spiritual, if not occultic. And it is gorgeous, partially because of the setting. You know, there's a lot of scenes of, you know, walking around, not just the, the nave of the church where, you know, they usually go into and they have the weddings and, you know, people go there to do their worship. But, you know, around the rafters and into the, the back rooms and the, where, where the priest sleeps and, uh, you know, going to look out the, the stained glass windows and this mysterious pit underneath. And it just becomes very... I don't know. I mean, it reminds me in some ways of uh, Wiesmann, uh, especially when he's his later stuff, when he started getting uh, back in touch with his Catholic roots. Uh, there's a lot of that sort of a feel to this decadent Gothic, um, what do you want to call it, um, appreciation of aesthetic that uh, bears something more to it than just, oh, isn't this you know a lovely pattern that clashes with this one? It's not a Wildean aesthetic. It's a decadent aesthetic. It's, it's darker. It, there's more to it. Uh, it's not saying a damn thing. You know, the film isn't saying anything, but 
it's got more you can read more into it there's a lot more illusions there's a lot more of a a nightmare logic to it that makes it extremely appealing to me and i always always love this film uh, i really do think it's his best work uh so how about you what do you want to say about this one who me no <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well it definitely it definitely feels like a unofficial third portion of the demon series in a way that, for some reason, about the third reel into this picture, we enter into the catacombs beneath the church, of course. Yes. And they come perilously close to uh, uh, subterranean train uh, train uh, tunnel. And then, of course, just when you think, which is shades of the demons films, I have to say, just when you think that, you know, we're safe home, um, despite all the bizarre stuff that's gone on before it. Then the movie has these little evil little twists, you know. Yes. Which, again, I don't want to ruin anything, but it's like, it does get a little into demon's territory. You're not quite sure what's going on in this movie, anyway. Um, but there is a lot of strange things going on. Uh, is this the movie with the, like, like the very quick, a car cutaways. There's the large green man with the, the, the bit of Satan worship going on there with the, the nude woman being caressed. This, this is that, right? Yeah. I'm not positive if it's this one or uh, the sect, because that went on in there too with the Druids. But yeah, there is a no, lot of that sort of thing going down here. Uh, because uh, the yeah, priests were involved okay. in this whole thing. It gets very, very dark. Uh, it goes to interesting yeah. territory. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a film I like as well. Uh, it's different from Stage Fright, so you know if we're gonna say well, what's better or worse? I mean, you you tend to like it better than Stage Fright. I think there's a little disconnect in the appeal of the leads for me. Where uh, Stage Fright, I don't know, I I, I the the, per- the blonde and peril, or I kind of went went along with that, but. Uh, here, it's visually entertaining, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, once again, like I said, it had Capisti in both films, so I was good there, right there. And Giovanni Barbaradice was in it in both films, so I, I was good as well. So you've got a good character actor and an attractive woman, and I was good enough. But you're right. Thomas Aranya was not a fantastic lead. Uh, it's just he didn't bother me. He wasn't offensive. So I'm like, all right, fine. Good enough. Um but from here, he goes downhill. Now, some people will say, oh, his greatest work is yet to come. Yeah, please. They watch too many art house films. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the next one is kind of an intermediary uh, where you take some of the church and then going back to some of the modern, uh, you know, everyday sort of elements of stage fright, moving towards where he's going to go finally to the third, fourth film. Uh, this is the sect, uh, which is for some reason also known as Demons 4, or the Devil's Daughter, which is probably the way you had found it on VHS back in the day. Uh, once again, Argento's involved. He produced and wrote it, uh, and, along with Suave and uh, somebody else I never heard of named uh, Johnny Romandy. Um, one of the biggest problems with this 
is it goes into Rosemary's Baby territory, and right there, it's like, oh, really? Come on. I mean, that was cute in 68, but enough of that shit. You know? I've never been one of those yuppie types and you know, worried about having babies and being paranoid that they got turned into monsters. And it's alive kind of crap. That's what's at the root of all that, and being worried about your neighbors. and This whole fear of giving birth and shit. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It does nothing for me. It has no application to my life. I'm not interested. Um, and the lead oh. in this... Is somebody named? <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of yuppies out there that love that shit. You know, it's a real pertinent uh, fear. Uh, Kelly Curtis is this person. She's an American girl, uh, basically dumb blonde. Think one of those bimbos that does the news, especially like a Fox News type thing. You know, one of those uh, Inside Edition types. Uh, oh, she's har- we're so cold tonight. She's horrible. I hate her. Uh, <laughs> well, she's not. She's a non-actress, but but she's Jamie Lee Curtis's more fleshy sister. <laughs> more flesh, right? And she's got a body on her. It's just like I have zero interest in this girl. She was horrible. Um, and she so is Jamie Lee Curtis's sister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so therefore, <laughs> the film didn't work for me at all. But uh, you do have Herbert Lom in it. You have Mariangela Giordano, who was in stuff like, you know, Patrick Lives Again, and uh, what was it, Malabimba, and so, you know, she was in some interesting stuff. Uh, she was in the uh, the infamous Burial Ground for uh, Andre Bianchi. Um, Radice is in it again, in a very small bit part, unfortunately. Uh, Thomas Aranya shows up in it again, probably unfortunately as well. Donald O'Brien shows up. Uh, who was in stuff like uh, what the hell was the knockoff that they did of Zombie really soon after? Oh, Zombie oh. Holocaust. Uh, Dr. Butcher. Um, and Suave's in it for a couple seconds. just does a little cameo. Uh, but despite my problems with the movie itself and its you know, main casting at least, uh, it does have elements that sort of work. I mean, if you compare it to something like, you know, The Guardian or what was that other one that uh, Angela Pleasance was in, where she was basically the same thing, and, and David oh, Hemmings, uh, I, yeah, the, really the Outsider. I don't forget the name of the damn thing was the O something. Yeah, not the Outing. Uh, Shout Factory put it out not too long ago. Uh, it's not a bad film, but the same exact idea. You know, it's like, oh wait, we, we're gonna take care of you because you know you're gonna have whatever. Instead of being the devil's door, now it's like, oh yeah, we're, you're secretly gonna be feeding our druid. And it's gonna be druids. Oh, was that and, thirst? Maybe thirst. Not thirst. Not thirst. Uh, oh, okay. But same idea. You're right. Same kind of plot. Okay. Uh, you are gonna feed our tree because it was a fucking tree that they worshipped, and. <laughs> Uh, of course, being true. And demonized pelicans. Remember, don't forget the demonized yes. pelicans. Yes. And there was a whole big thing with wind chimes, and she kept having visions. Like I said, very Rosemary's Baby. Oh, you know, where, who am I, and what am I doing, and why am I having sex with this person that turns out to be their tree god? And, you know, it's just ridiculous. But, um, well, she had a hot body. So, yeah. She did. She had a nice body. That's not a question. It's just, I don't know. I mean, there's people out there that go crazy over, like, the Megyn Kellys of the world. And there's people like me that wouldn't, you know, throw you 50 cents yeah. for them, you know? <laughs> I want to Fox News, bitches. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I know. But, uh, you know, that that's the kind of thing. If you're really hot for this, like, very American, very generic, uh, cheerleader next door, blondes. Then yeah, you'll probably like be totally like, oh yeah, it's a great film. Me, I was just like, you know, it's Suave. I can see some things about it that are good. He's definitely got some good cast outside of her. It's just I don't know. I don't I don't agree with the where this movie's going. I don't care for the whole um, not aesthetic, but the whole uh, premise basically. 
and it just mm. felt too early 90s. You know, it was, it was kind of pushing into the 90s now, and it did not feel like an Italian horror film in that respect. It felt more like a, I hate to say a lifetime drama, but, you know, that's kind of where you were going. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't work. Um, it's not really a surprise to me that this one, uh, I think, still hasn't come out to DVD. I, I think they're threatening to put it out soon. Uh, and, you know, if it does come to DVD as opposed to uh, whatever did, I have. It on, did. It did. It did. Through, uh, Anchor Bank. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I don't think I have it. Uh, you know, I would probably upgrade it to that. But, you know, it's not, not saying it's a good film. It's definitely uh, the least of the first three. Um, so is there anything you want to say about this one? No, I think I think we covered this. Yeah. All right. So then, basically, I hate to say his career ends because uh, he does one more film, which, for some strange reason, people in the art house circuit latched onto it. So the same crowd that was going for you know Antonioni films, which you know I do enjoy, and Buñuel films, I love Louis Buñuel, uh, and you know uh, whatever the hell. Uh, Name some Italian directors like from the New York Realist, you know, that kind of thing, like Rossellini, uh, Fellini. Mm-hmm. You know, Fellini, I get a kick out sometimes, but you know, that sort of a crowd all of a sudden now gravitated to him. I mean, this is kind of around the time of the, the Sundance uh, started coming out and becoming a big deal as an alternate to Khan. And all of a sudden, you would have things like, you know, Kevin Smith's clerks being faded by the same crowds that were into, you know, uh, Jean Louis Trontignant and. Um, uh, what's his name there? Uh, Marcelo Mastriani, 20 years before this, uh, which is strange when you think about it, but that's kind of what they had to work with. And but, but, but they, they I, not to cut you off, but an important point to make before we go further with this, they embraced them, embraced him, they embraced this movie, although we originally got a cut version, and then they abandoned him. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what happened. See, he got this real wave of popularity that was unheard of, especially for a cult film director. They were looking at him like, oh, this is the next you know, great hope of you know, art film or whatever. And that in itself was strange. I don't know how he took it. You know, probably he took it with an odd sense of humor. But remember, if, if uh, Giovanni was right and he primarily thinks himself or sees life as a painter and he's a sensitive guy – uh, presumably this appealed to a certain aspect of his professional ego, not in the sense of like, oh, yeah, beat my chest, you know, I'm great, like Donald Trump kind of a thing. Uh, it's more of a, oh, look, my art is being appreciated and people understand that it is art. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And then after they did this, and, and that in itself kind of turned me off because that's not what he was shooting for. That's not really who he was. Uh, and I didn't see that in this film. I didn't know why they latched onto it. Uh, then they dropped him like a hot potato. And I understand that he got sick as well. I don't know if that was an emotional thing that brought it on or if he actually had a physical illness that was pre-existing that really kind of flared up at this point. Uh, but he dropped out for a lot of years. So that's getting a little bit ahead. Uh, so it, in effect, this was his, quote, last movie. He did some stuff much later. I understand he did some TV. He did a couple of films that uh, don't really matter that we'll make a quick you know mention of. But his last film that people care about, his last cult film, and certainly the only you know, film the art house crowd recognizes, is this thing, Della Morte Della More, which also is uh, titled Cemetery Man. Uh, it's, I don't know. During this period, we had a lot of horror comedies that became like the new thing. I never understood that. You know, I love Reanimator, but the comedy part, I just didn't get. And I was like, what is this all about? And then it started getting worse, like, you know, Bride of Reanimator. And then you started having things like, um, 
jeez, uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead. You know, you send more cops. You know? Okay, yes, my father thought it was hilarious. I enjoyed the aesthetic of the movie otherwise, but horror and comedy, I don't know. They just don't mix. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a serious gothic sort of a thing. You're trying to get into a mood. You know, why are you doing cheap jokes? You know, I feel with a slasher film, I guess, because that's already kind of like the cheap joke teenager crowd, but it just doesn't work with a real horror film. And that's kind of what this was. He was tapping into this bizarre take, this kind of a scant view of comedy horror uh, with sort of a Tim Burton feel, which may be why the art house crowd looked at this, because, you know, I don't think Burton was really big yet. He had done Batman, but, you know. Um, and I think he done Beetlejuice, but, you know, he wasn't really huge yet. Uh, it's sort of a gothic meditation on being an outsider. And, again, like the title suggests, the relationship between, you know, love and death or lusting after death, a Thanatero surge. Uh, on a surface level, it's sort of a zombie film, and that's the way people that, you know, put it on DVD and things like that tend to market it because they know it's going to that crowd. But, it's weirder than that. I mean, the guy is basically – he works at a cemetery. He works at an ossuary and all thing, and he digs graves with his basically retarded uh, manservant and pal uh, named Nagi. He, he looks like a Tor Johnson type, but he's got the brains of like a child. Um, Who was apparently a well-known singer. Was he really? I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, or he may still be, yeah, yeah. So the two of them are there. They you know, obviously take care of the dead, and they kind of live their own isolated world. And at some point, he flips out and sees, you know, his girlfriend dies. So he sees his dead lover in every single girl he meets. And oh, and what, what, right, right. Yeah, and what's going on is he has this weird thing where he, they call him returners, and apparently the dead come back to life, and he thinks it's his job with Nagi there to go and shoot these guys and kill them and send them back to, you know, their, their undeath, I guess. Uh, so... Once he starts flipping out and seeing his dead girlfriend, and basically everybody, every female when it comes around, he moves from shooting zombies back to dead to going around killing live people. I don't understand the whole thing. It's so stupid. It's, you know what? It's like a very 90s, I want to be subversive. Let's try to make something transgressive because I heard about this guy, you know, Nick Zed. I heard about this guy, Richard Kern. I, I really want to do something sort of sonic youthy and New York, you know, uh, underground scene, like a Lydia Lunch sort of thing. But I've never seen one of these fucking things and I don't understand them. Uh, that's kind of what this is. Uh, it's subversive in the sense of like a Tarantino film crossed with like a Gregor Rackey film, like, you know, the Doom Generation. It doesn't work. I mean, everybody knows this film. Uh, it had won some awards, but in terms of the four films so far, even with the sect, uh, you know, and I think Anna Fauci was fucking gorgeous. This is no question. Uh, Barbara Capice is in it too, but compared to Fauci, she just does not compute. I mean, there's a scene where she's, you know, as she basically, because they didn't give her a name, uh, she is one of these zombie visions or something. She's got like, you know, uh, like a laurel wreath in her hair, kind of like a goddess crown, and she's like screwing them on top of a grave, and she's got this, you know, fantastic body. And it's just like, oh my god, it's one of the most remember, you know, it's, it's the most recognizable image out of his entire filmography, and possibly out of, you know, the, the sexy end of Italian film per se, and of that era. And yet the film just – I don't know. And it ends in this weird kind of metaphysical thing where they're going – you know, him and Nagi are driving off, and they wind up in this area that's kind of like a cliff. Uh, and I was like, oh, should we keep driving? And you know, it's, it's almost like a, a weird take on um, 
Thelma and Louise. I mean, instead of driving off the cliff, and it's like, okay, well, this is it. And it just ends like that. I'm like, uh, I don't know what the hell he's trying to say. I don't think he knew what he's trying to say, but the art house crowd loved it. And for some reason, even the fans of Suave's earlier stuff love this film. Like, oh, yeah, Suave, he's the guy that did Delamorte to Delamorte in Cemetery Man. I don't know. I don't get it. I'm sorry. I mean, it's visual, but it's nothing like his other films. It's very Hollywood in a weird way. And I just, well, it's hard to defend. <laughs> well, well, I think one of the base problems uh, with this is it was based on Romano's, I think, Scivellani is how you pronounce his name, uh, Dylan Dog. Something like that, yeah. Right. Yeah, Fumetti, Italian comic book. Which a lot of freaking people said they know of when this movie was in production. And I'm really, in the back in those days, I was really on the cusp of all this stuff. I knew about all this stuff. And I was like, what the hell is Yeah, I mean, I knew Valentina. So, you know, I knew Greedo Creepax. Yeah, what yeah, the yeah. fuck's yeah. Dylan Dog? We knew, I mean. we, yeah, we knew. We knew we knew the obvious ones. Like Dylan Dog to me, even at the time, was obscure. Yep. So uh prior to the release of this movie they started to actually put out uh English translations of some of the Dylan Dog uh strips, you know, which are, you know, softbound, you know like they do with everything else in comics now, you know, like uh hundred and twenty pages worth of stories. Yeah. I almost bought one and then I started seeing some images online. I'm like, oh, this looks kind of unusual. But I'm not sure I get it. Yeah. Then I saw the movie. I said, well, if Dylan Dog is actually like this, and he used that as a uh, jumping off point, and use a lot of the influences that you described, I don't think I want to bother, because those things are still bloody expensive. Even the reprints, you know, the, the yep. English version, English English language version of those things. I was like, wow, that's expensive, man. <laughs> Exactly. Like 1990s expensive, so it was like, shit, you know, like, nowadays we're lucky, you know, when things get reprinted to like $35, $40, okay, we still think it's pricey depending on your budget, but back then, when couple things hundred got bucks. reprinted, yeah. they were a couple hundred dollars, yeah, they were like $85, like, wow, for 120 pages, what are you out of your mind? <laughs> Although, we should have bought them, because now we can sell them for a lot more money, True. but... Hindsight doesn't always work in our... Right. Yeah, um... <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Anna Felci. I don't know why. I found her a little creepy. Um, <laughs> she was definitely... Yeah, right. She was definitely attractive, but creepy. And, the, yeah, when... I don't know... How close... Um... He was adhering to some of these stories uh, with, you know, what you basically think is your hero becoming a psychopath. Yeah. And then it's difficult to make that sort of character likable. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, think Michael Douglas in Falling Down. You know, the guy the guy goes off for a reason, <clears throat> and then he just keeps going off to the point where well, you dislike him. And right. That's the problem all of a sudden, parents. from being sympathetic, he's like a racist shit, and that's you're right. The same thing here. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's difficult to like him, and it gets more and more bizarre as it as it unspools. And I think almost to the point where even the original long version, which I think was 103 minutes, not really long, um, but probably longer than Cemetery Man, which I think was like. Um. 
You don't care. It's nice yep. to look at. It's a little. It's a little soft shot too, which is the other thing because with mm-hmm. all, with all the, I'm just thinking. So with all the clever visual ideas he brought to this, because we've seen his work before this. Right. With all the visual, uh, clever visual ideas he brings to this. Uh, I forgot who his DP was on this, but it's really soft shot, which kind of, kind of like hurts it, I think, in a way, because yep. if he was going for a bit of an ethereal look, you want you want to be clear. You want to. You, we're entering into this world you created, and if it's a fan, fantastic world, a fantasy world, there's no reason to go shoot everything very gauzy. I hate that. You know, yep. I don't like that. Same and here. It goes all the way to. Film. So yeah, it's 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 a movie that doesn't work, unfortunately. Yep. And yep, it has this fantastic reputation. So it just shows you how it odds popular taste is from reality. <laughs> uh, so after this, like I said, we're pretty much done with Suave because he was gone for a long time. He did a self-imposed uh, retirement, if you will. Uh, some of it might have been just, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with the fact that I was so faded and then dropped. Uh, some of it may have been the health issue that came on. Uh, and I, some I, of it may I have just been... Something, I heard something his uh, son or his wife was ill, one of the two. Yeah, there was a um, couple things going down. Uh, it's he, just, had a, he had a lot of stuff going on. And yeah, he disappeared for a couple of years. He actually did... Uh, he did Second Union again. We mentioned that before for uh, Terry Gilliam. Um, right for another movie, and um, he went back to Italian TV, working right. on a few films. Uh, Il Baccio, like his, is probably, from what I understand, one of the better films. Right, and he had done a couple of films. There was a, a neo noir revival that was pretty recent, 2006, called The Goodbye Kiss. He did a war film revival thing called The Blood of the Losers in 2008. And strangely enough, he did something called St. Francis in 2002, which surprised me because it's actually exactly what it sounds like. It's like a brother, son, and sister moon for the new millennium. Uh, so I don't know what the deal was there. Obviously, he's not doing horror films anymore. Um, no, but, but you know. not, having, not having seen those movies, so I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that uh, one day if I so happen to compare, come upon them, I might check them out to see visually how striking they may be. Yeah. Or not. So uh, basically that's it for Suave. I mean, he's still around. And there's always potential for him to do something else outside of Italian TV or outside of these yeah, more mainstream films. I believe he's 58. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, as far as we know, that's kind of it. He has not done another cult film or really, to our knowledge, expressed desire in doing so. Uh, so now we'll move on to Lamberto Bava, who actually has the longer and more prolific career, but just as spotty, honestly. Um, he started out, obviously, as a second unit and assistant director, nine times out of ten on his father's films. Uh, Kill Baby Kill, back in 66, Danger Diabolic in 68, Roy Colton Winchester Jack. Uh, a Bay of Blood, Barren Blood, Four Times That Night, Lisa and the Devil, Rabid Dogs, uh, House of Exorcism. Uh, he worked with him on Inferno for Argento. They did that uh, business with the pool with Irene Miracle. Uh, he was on something called The Kiss of Death back in 74. He did a couple things for Diodato. He was an AD on uh, Jungle Holocaust and Cannibal Holocaust. And okay. he was the first AD on uh, Argento's Tenebre. But in terms of his actual films... Uh, 
Shock was really kind of his. I mean, he co-directed it with Mario, but there's really not a hint of Mario in it. And the Mm -hmm. legend has it. The stories I've always heard was that Mario either never showed up or he would show up in the morning, kind of like, you know, sit there for a couple minutes, wave his hand, and then go, you know, have a cup of coffee and go home and leave Lamberto there like it was an accident. Like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to wander off. I'll be back later. You do that for now. And... So officially, it says directed by Mario Ball, but that's not true. It was directed by Lamberto, and it was also written by Lamberto with Darno Cicchetti. Um Dario Nicolotti's in it, so you've got the Argento connection there. Um, John Steiner is in it. He popped up in a lot of stuff around this time. Ivan Rasimov's in it, so you've got the Diodato connection did there. Did you like it? I didn't like Shock. I never did. did yeah. Did you like that? I always had problems with it. One thing I did like is the, the music was done by a goblin knockoff band called Elibra. Uh It's an mm-hmm. Italian band that was... Yeah. This is strange. They were actually signed by Motown Records in the U.S. And their keyboardist actually was from Goblins, Mauricio Guarini. Uh, one of the iterations of Goblins, I should say. But it's a little bit different from Goblin. It's more percussive. I would think that the drummer was the one that was uh, running the band because it's very more... Uh, it's almost like uh, Tony Williams' Lifetime. Uh, you can kind of mm-hmm. feels like the drummer is the head guy there. Um, but, you know, interesting and Goblin-esque for sure. The film itself, well, I really liked Ariana Nicolodi. I liked her as a person when I met her, and I liked her always before this, just from the films. Um, so she almost saves it, but it's kind of tough. Once again, you've got this domestic thing. She kind of gets hysterical. Uh, Steiner and Rasmus just kind of being annoying. Uh, you've got this little brat running around. I don't, I don't think it was Giovanni Fretzel, but that kind of a guy. Um, and once again, you get into that weird edible shit where it's like, oh, look, you know, turn the screw kind of thing. I'm wearing some old damn Curtis. Uh, is the kid, you know, possessed by his father and he's coming out to his mother? Or, you know, is, who's going to yeah, be yeah, killer? Yeah. Why is there a razor blade fooling around in front of the camera, which is obviously on a handheld in front of the camera? Uh, look, with all the genre pictures of this thematic thing going on this time period. Yes. Because there was there were some American made for T V movies and maybe one day we should do a show with the best skip trilogy of terror we already carried that cover that. Yeah. But there were there was some good stuff, some creepy shit in American T V in the seventies. Well, we covered uh, a lot of it during the Dan Curtis one because he did about seven of them. We so. did, we did, but there's a couple other things. But oh, yeah, anyway, there there was the occasional creepy, edible freakout movie, and this is another one of them where um, it was a little too creepy. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> what are you doing here? You know, um, I don't know. I also felt one of the problems with this movie is a bit dry. Yep. Um, his his uh, his. You know, he's 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 basically starting. He's directing his first film. One of the things I remember most about this movie is uh, Peppercorn Wormser, one yeah. of the U.S. distributors, who also handed handed uh, handled House of Exorcism, the, the butchered version of Lisa and the Devil. Mm-hmm. They had the great trailer for this. Beyond the door, two 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 two. You know. It's just, <laughs> crazy echo thing going on. They took all the sleazy screaming parts and they, they made a really good effect of one minute, 30 seconds. Right. Which is probably better than the whole movie. <laughs> um, but what we didn't discuss in the Mario Baba show, probably because we were running for, running long on time and 
we got everything in but this movie, which was um, there was another movie that Lamberto worked on with his father, and it's hard to say who was responsible. It was a TV film, Venus of the Island, the Ver Venere de Il. And we didn't get to discuss that when we did the Mario Bava show. Uh, it's a very, uh, Dario Nicolotti stars in it. It's a, it's a genre-esque kind of movie. It's very weird, strange. It's more of an art film, I would say. Have you ever seen this? No, I always wanted to, but I never did. That was back in my gray market days. They always listed it, and I'm like, eh, what is this? I'll get this. But it always said, you know, Italian language, no subs. I'm like, eh, I'll wait. And, of course, it never came out, so. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 don't, I used to have several copies of this because it was so bloody obscure. Yes. But uh, I believe somebody was taping it off of French TV, and then somebody taped it off of Italian TV. It was that kind of deal, guys. Um listeners, you know, it was like, we had to get, you know, I felt like, I had to see this, and then when I saw it, I think I fell asleep on it. You know, you're really excited to see something, and then it's just like very, very soft shot for a film from both Bavas. Uh, you know, I was just mentioning before, like this gauzy type of uh, cinematography, and uh, quite a bit of it takes place outdoors. It's a romantic movie. It's has elements of Gothicism in it, and yet it's eh, it's a big eh. And um, but I did want to mention that because we didn't get to mention it during the Mario show. I want people to think we didn't know this movie existed, but we did. We just you know. Right. What leads us to Macabre? And I'll let yes. you go with that one. All right, now this one is actually my least favorite of the Lamberto Barra films. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. No shock. Yeah. It came out on a double with something else. It might have been with uh, the Spanish. When we get to Spanish horror a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about that one, uh, Campbellman. Uh, so therefore, yeah. I have it. But it – I don't know. You think shock didn't work? <laughs> yeah. You think shock didn't work? Fucking macabre. Uh, all I remember, and this is how bad this is, because we're really going back. I saw it once. And I'm like, never again, and that was the end of it. Um, it just kind of got shelled because of the other movie. Um, basically, you've got Pupiavati helped co-wrote it with Lamberto Bava, and he's responsible for two of my favorites of these kind of films, which is Zader, Revenge of the Dead, which is still waiting for a good Great. DVD release. Uh, love that on VHS. And the equally excellent and super creepy uh, House of Laughing Windows. Uh, it was super so, slow, too, but, but super creepy. Yeah, but that thing scared the shit out of you. That was freaky with those two women. Uh, I just anyway. watched that the other day again, by Did the you? way. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, have but, a, I have one of these Italian or German discs that has all these extras. But the problem is, Macabre is, all I remember is, I think they used it for the poster, too. These two old bags, and... Somebody went and cut off like their husband's head or something and stuck it in the microwave. It was the stupidest. You know, it, I, I just – it's so bad that I actually forgot most of it, if not all of it. Uh, there's nobody in it you know, in terms of like even when you know a lot of cult film stuff. You watch a lot of films in this period. Who the fuck is Elisa Khadija Bove? or Bernice Steggers or Stanko Molnar or Veronica Zinni? I'm getting the impression it was like oh. when uh, when Fulci went to – uh, Czechoslovakia, or whatever the hell it was, to film Enigma, 
that's what it reminds me of. It's like, did he go to like Czechoslovakia or somewhere out there in the the Eastern Curtain, you know, the uh, the Eastern Bloc countries to go and get this <laughs> behind the Iron Curtain to have this thing done? I don't know. The other title on this one was Frozen Terror, just so you get the idea. But the the only terror is that it even exists and that it was released. So go ahead. Tell me. You probably better remember well, this. Well, Bernice, Bernice Stegers did appear in a couple of pictures. Uh, you know, nothing. This was like her biggest, well, it was like a starring role. Um, she's strangely attractive. Like, strangely, like, if you want a slightly chunky hooker. Yeah, she's like attractive like that. Not milky either, but she's a you little older. You mean like, um, who's the one you like that uh, ended up doing porn? Uh, she was in some Franco stuff too. Uh, the big German woman. Uh, she was the, the mother in Hannah D. Oh, Karen Schubert. Karen Schubert, yes, like that. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, maybe a little bit, but maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Not, not, not as hot as somebody we're going to tackle soon, Miss um, Grandy. But uh, that's an oh yes, but go ahead. But <laughs> we'll get there. But no, Bernice Steegers has a strangely attractive or not thing going on with her. <laughs> Basically, the story is. This woman had this, like, tinted at, like, this possibly abusive relationship with her boyfriend. And it's not until later, well, we're going to give it away. We don't like this fucking movie anyway. And she <laughs> killed him. But she doesn't remember that she killed him. She cut him up into many different pieces. Yep. So she had, she makes love to his body parts, or most of mostly what we see is his head. On occasion, now there's the guy, the nice guy next door, and the nice blind man. Well, no, he's the blind guy is creepy, but there's a nice guy who lives in the building, and it's a creepy blind dude. Who looks pretty attractive, um, and they 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 at first, well, the creepy blind guy wants to fuck her, and the nice guy probably wants to fuck her too, but none of these guys know that she's you know they start hearing voices because they spy on her. Oh, like, oh, man, she's got a dude in the apartment, you know? So now they, they kind of hint at, because we sometimes hear a male voice, so is she afflicting a male voice, the voice of her dead lover? I don't know. I, I just It's a very unlikable movie, and then, yeah. of course, by the end, when we find out what had happened, we don't really care. We were just creeped out a bit much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this would be a great bill with Shock, which was a couple of years earlier, like, four years earlier, because both of them are Lamberto Baba movies. Sorry, sorry Lamberto. They are just not thrilled with. And yeah, that, I'll take shock over this any day. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and, and, and and that, and I think it was Blue Underground put this on uh, the double bill uh, cemetery. Uh, I thought it was Anchor Bay, but yeah, Blue <sighs> Underground, that's still lusting either way. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was uh, put on a double bill with that movie you mentioned, which I hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of it either. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Um, oh, yeah, but, Bill from Hell, right? Yeah. yeah, well, I'm not Bill from Hell. It's a good film. I like that one, dark as it is. Um, but anyway, so moving on from so, that piece of shit, he does, on from that. <laughs> he does so what eloquent. is one of his <laughs> one of his best films, I still think, which is A Blade in the Dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also known as the House of the Dark Scarecase or La Casa con la Scala de Boyo, uh, which is which my wife made me shut off. Really? Oh, you really gonna... Yeah, it, it upset it's my really wife, good... but she sat through it and recognized that it was good for its type. So I'll give her credit for that. Um, yeah, well, 
Yeah, she sometimes she watches really stuff that disturbs me. I'm like, why are you watching this? I got her off the Netflix like torture porn stuff after a while. Okay. Like, I, I didn't want to hear it in the other room. I can't take but, that shit. I don't know how it's popular. It says a lot about people. I don't know. I I, I give up with her. But I put on Blade in the Dark because I think it's a good movie. And then after a couple of the murders, she's like, it's too brutal. <laughs> don't show her. Uh, what is it? Non Hosono. <laughs> but that yeah, yeah, I, which oh I my liked. god! <laughs> I love that movie, but at least in the the original Italian. If you get the one that came out over here, which I didn't, uh, I actually got straight from Italy with the Medusa film. Uh, that's the way yeah, to yeah, go. Yeah, mine too. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that that version is awesome. Uh, good Goblin reunion soundtrack too. Uh, but anyway, in terms of Blade of the Dark, uh, Andrea Acciapinti, who was in um, a couple of Fulci films, he was in Conquest and he was in. <laughs> Uh, what the hell is that? New York Ripper, um, which is why the duck noise. Uh, that's what I remember him from. Uh, but and Swabby and Swabby. Yeah, well, yeah, well, this is the thing. Uh, Chipinti, uh those of you who have seen him in his other films, is uh, he doesn't seem gay in any respect. Not not directly. He's just sort of weak and effeminate, kind of like um, David Hemmings wound yeah. up being used in uh, Deep Red. You know, you know, he's ineffectual. Uh, he's weak. Um, or, you know, uh, David, uh, you said it wasn't Brandon, uh, the one from, um, the first Argento, well, the first Argento, but, you know, Burger Crystal Plumage, you know, that guy there, Tony Musante. Oh, Tony Musante. Uh, Tony Musante. Yeah, same idea. He's, he's kind of weak, ineffectual man. And, you know, he's well, sensitive. He's, he's a composer. They do that a lot, though. They do that a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. uh. Well, there's a reason I'm bringing this up. So here's the okay. lead. He's this sensitive, kind of effeminate composer type. Uh, he's got a girlfriend who's actually kind of pretty, this girl, uh, oh Lara. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Lara Nizinski, uh, you know, pretty girl, comes by, check on him, whatever. He kind of chases her away. Oh, I got to do my, you know, make a music score. And he's making a music score for a horror film. Um, Which is really but, creepy. Yeah, so it's like metatextual <laughs> in a way. And he's sitting there at his little, like, nice Italian villa, kind of out in the woods, more or less. Nice uh, place, right? One, like levels, place. one level, but gorgeous, you know. Kind of, it's weird, because he's got this recording studio, and all he's got is, like, glass-sliding partitions. I'm like, so anybody in the fucking world can walk up to you and steal all this equipment, really? Sure. I mean, you're like, yeah. you'd be crazy, but nonetheless, it's a gorgeous flat, gorgeous yard and everything else. So he's living there, he's doing this stuff, and he's got a friend, um... I think he's actually was was he a neighbor or is he um uh I, I don't remember what the relationship was, but somehow he was either involved with him uh being in this place, you know, maybe it's like renting the house, or he's a neighbor oh, he's or, renting the house. Okay, yes he was. He's, All right. He's so, renting the house from, from what we from have Swab. to presume is like a childhood friend, yeah, played by Swabby. Yeah. And they're friendly, and you know he seems like a nice enough guy. But again, you know it's Swabby. We talked about how he was before, uh, just physically. And but he's, he's slightly kind of, creepy. He's slightly yeah, creepy. there's something a little uh, off, and you're like, what's going on here? Especially with you know this guy being a little bit kind of weak and effeminate in the first place, and then you've got Swabby there acting really, you know, mm, yeah, something's a little strange here. And it turns out, you know, not to give too much away, but there is a cross-dressing killer going around. Uh, and it really, it gets much more than that, obviously. It's not just a slasher film. It's not that dumb. Uh, it's more of a giallo. But it's very 
dark and you know what it reminded me of the most? It reminded me of Torso, Sergio Martino's Torso. That's mm-hmm. sort of a level of wow, this is a really freaking good giallo. Oh my god, this is really brutal and disturbing. Wow, this is really transgressive sexually and what they're saying here, what they're hinting at. And you know, yet it really works. It's it's a if you're gonna name off like okay, I'm gonna show somebody a giallo, you know those films, Torso and Blade in the Dark would be up there in my top ten. You know, yeah, I give you an Abdus Fenech film too, but definitely these are really strong examples of the genre. Uh, again, I don't want to give too much away about this one, but you already get the idea from what I said. And you know, the actually this person Sandra who keeps coming around uh, is his director on the film, and he says, oh yeah, you know. There's this whole thing about uh, the person who used to live in this villa, and when they were a child, and this happened and that happened, and it all turns out to come together in a nice, neat, uh, a tidy little um, – you, know, you know those balls of rubber bands? They, they keep like wrapping rubber bands around each other, and you finally get this nice tight ball that all fits together, and you can't imagine it ever being anything but like a baseball. It's like that. It, it's one of those kind of jobs. Really, really good, really creepy, really atmospheric. Um, I hate to say well-acted with Italian horror, but in the terms of Italian horror, it is. It's very effective. Uh, Good score. um, Beautiful visuals. I mean, if you want to put on a picture like, okay, here's Lamberto Bava, you know, not doing this uh, sort of blandish TV movie, uh, just point a camera and walk away kind of a thing. He's actually framing things nicely. He's actually using cinematography. This is the one. I really think it is his best film. So uh, without giving anything away, there's nothing really else I can say. So how about you? What do you want to say about this one? Well, it's not – I mean, for me, it's not his best film. We're going to get to that uh, – or best films. But it's among them. Uh, the score is great. Um, I really like how they amped up the sound of the music. It's familiar to us enough when we see these giallos, especially Argento films and the uh, Goblin work. This very, it's not quite familiar. It's familiar, but it's not quite what we've heard before. It's, it's, it's repeated ad nauseum with slight differences because the guy's supposed to be a composer. Right. Um, but he does really interesting things with this Lamberto Bava where whispers. You know, like he, the guy, if, if you're familiar with, um, I guess it's Deep Red, yes? You know, he plays back the recording. Um uh, the, the composer plays back the recording here in Blade in the Dark, and he keeps hearing a whisper, but he has to try to isolate all the other tracks. Mm-hmm. What is whisper saying? You know, and the women women come and go and appear and disappear. And of course, they're murdered. Otherwise, we have no movie we'd want to watch. Um, and as the whisper comes more prominent, it gets fucking creepier because it's like, oh my god. Yes. And so remember, this yes. is a big sense that I didn't mention of isolation. Everything feels like, even though there are daytime scenes, everything feels like there's nobody else in the world but this one, two, three characters, and it's always dark and late at night, and it's like a total feeling of existential isolation, like it's total nightmare logic. So go ahead, go back to what you're doing. Well, and then there's a, some, you know, you mentioned the cross-dressing color, but there's a lot more leading up to that. Yes. There's, um, well, it ties into the childhood story, like I said, but yeah. The child, yeah, there's a childhood story that's actually very intricately woven, woven into this whole thing. And, you know, it's a very applaudable achievement. They had little money. It was shot in 16 millimeter. Um, over the period of weeks in a friend's house, 
Um, so, you know, there's not a set. All this is real fucking, you know, somebody's house, somebody's car. And um, it's a really good, applaudable work of, of film. Um, it's not a perfect movie. Yeah, it's far from it, no. but it's really good picture. And, you know, it's a funny thing. We were discussing this because I wanted to just refresh my mind, and sometimes I have so many books and so many things, and I can only watch so many movies in a week to refresh. So I, I went on Wikipedia just like, oh, let me just refresh a little bit. And I'm reading this stuff about Lamberto Bob, and it looked really familiar to me yeah. because I wrote it because <laughs> apparently somebody stole stuff from my book. Oh, that's good. And then credited me. I'm on Wikipedia. Well, whatever it's worth. But they took whole sections from my book <laughs> and put them on Wikipedia. I was like, hey, I know it's familiar. I wrote this. So <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Um, it's true. Yeah, go on Wikipedia. Look under Lamberto Bava where it says post-1980s works, which is not what I wrote. But the, the whole paragraph after that is mine. Yeah. Anyway, uh shit that happened who did that anyway well you know it's funny because I actually found that I was getting a tremendous amount of hits on one of the just one show that I had done and there's two people on it but I'm like you know one of them was a popular guy back when you know a big name in power metal I guess who later became known as at the time was just metal and the other one was more of a uh, she's in like sort of a gothic metal band but she did some AOR stuff and that's what I was talking to her about pretty girl from Sweden but you know I was like, why the hell is this particular show getting an enormous amount of hits? And then I discovered, oh, wait, when you go online and look up you know, this guy's name, there's a picture that they took from my site. So I guess people that you know, go in to look at the picture or whatever, it tells you where it comes from, and then they go and follow it through to find out what's going down, and you know, there you go. Uh, so good by me, but it's just like – it's interesting how the internet works. You know, your your uh, works and words and deeds live on beyond you, which is kind of cool in a way. But you know, I guess if you're trying to make a living, no, I'm not it's fucking annoying. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm by far, I've long you don't want to know what my royalties are. I've I've long far given up making a living from it. That was never my intent anyway. But it's funny that somebody took the time to type all this stuff in. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least they credited me on the Wikipedia credits page. But yeah. I was like. Well, who typed all this in? Wasn't <laughs> <laughs> me. All right, from there we go to Blast Fighter, a film yeah. you have the hots for. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, all right. I met uh, Michael Sopke. He's a great guy. He's got a good sense of humor about all this stuff. He's been in several of these sort of films. Um, I think usually, if not always, for Lamberto himself, we'll get to some of them afterwards. Uh, I like him as a person. He's from Connecticut, you know, really laid back, easygoing guy, good sense of humor. Like I said, uh, was really nice to my wife. They had a good conversation, which is fascinating. I'm like, my wife's seen you in a couple of films, but you know, otherwise she doesn't really care about this stuff. And they're there chatting away. I'm like, wow, this is really weird. <laughs> uh, and you know, not like he's hitting on her. He's just like friendly. Um, but Blast Fighter itself. All right. I love canon films. We discussed that previously. Uh, one of these days, maybe we'll talk kickboxing films. And those of you who are interested in more, you know, like I just saw these films again. Let me give you my blow by blow uh, on canon films and Chuck Norris films and Charlie Bronson films and, you know, all this stuff. 
go back and check out early last year on NI level. I actually just listened to a couple of them today. So going from like, I guess, December of 2014 to maybe March or April of 2015, almost every show I'll be giving an update on movies I had seen. Uh, so that said, I still was not a fan of Blast Fire. Uh, it's trying to be sort of a... I don't want to say First Blood because it's nothing to do with Vietnam. Uh, the guy's basically a cop, right? He was a former cop. And his wife got killed. So he goes after the guy, the killer, and he went from prison for seven years. All right, fine. So he gets out, and he, his pal says, hey, you know what? Let me give you this you know, great shotgun, you know, special shotgun, so you can go and get the attorney who's like a you know, like scummy attorney to send him away uh, and you know, get revenge. So he's thinking about it, and he's like, nah, I'm not going to do this. So he goes out instead to the woods. Um, and he kind of like sticks the gun under the floorboards, and he's like, all right, I think his daughter comes out to visit. Yes, that's right, his, his daughter comes out to visit, uh, along with her boyfriend and all this stuff. But all of a sudden, while he's out there, he, he's got like this uh, baby deer, he's taking girl shit. They come, and these poachers go and kill the deer. So all right, he's already upset. So now uh, he goes and you know basically almost goes after him. He doesn't do anything horrible yet, but it ends up becoming a tit for tat. And they end up killing people a lot. They kill off his daughter. You know, there's all this kind of like, um, jungle revenge sort of shit, but out in the backwoods. So it's sort of like Deliverance-esque. And eventually mm-hmm. he goes, and almost at the end of the friggin' film, he makes his way back to the cabin after all this, digs up the gun, and he takes them on. And, you know, these cops and hunters and whatever, because they're all kind of crooking in on it. Uh, and he gets his revenge for what it's worth. There you go, end of film. It was too dark for me. I, I don't think as much as I love Italians and Italian action films, I don't think in a lot of cases they understood the cheese behind the uh, what, what makes the American version of these work. I mean, sometimes you got great ones like Light Blast. That's a hilarious one. I love that film. Uh, obviously, they were great on post-apocalyptic films and all sorts of genres, but when it comes to these sort of action films, once you get outside like the Italian cop film, uh, they don't really work a lot of times, and unfortunately this is one of those. Uh, George Eastman's in it. Fabio Fritzi does the music for it, and Sopke's in it. His daughter, uh, I think it's Valerie Blake or something. She's really pretty. But, you know, I don't know. It, it's grim. It's not like a horrible film. I wouldn't say don't watch this film. It's just – it's got a bad taste. It'll leave a bad taste in your mouth. So uh, since you had uh, went out of your way to say that I was a huge fan of it, what's your take since I kind of know already? Oh, no, I was just kidding you. I was just kidding you. I know. Yeah, I, 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 did, I didn't like this movie either. And I, I'm not a fan of Monster Shock either. Really? Because um, I love that one. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, love is a strong word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Comparatively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't like Blast Spider, and, and, and I, I have little to say because it probably pretty much equals what you just said. Yeah. So then he goes on and does Monster Sharks, actually the same year, uh, which is better known to mystery science people as Devilfish. Uh, Safke's in it again. Uh, there's this really weird-looking sort of Daryl Hannah-esque, uh, supposedly oceanographer scientist or some crap. He's like a a boat, uh, you know, I hate to say gun runner, but he's one of those like sleazy, you know, I live in a boat kind of thing. Um, 
And she's like nobody, some French girl, Valentine Monnier. Johnny Garko's in the damn thing. It's the sheriff, William Berger. So you got a lot of like um, uh, Western, spaghetti Western folks in here. Uh, he's like the professor. Dagmar Sanders shows up in this. She was popping up in stuff like Trafalci at the time. Uh, like oh, uh, House of Cemetery. Yeah, Cindy the Ponty's in it. I mean, Fabio Frizzi does the music. Uh, basically what's going on is they're in Florida, right? Uh, and of course there's a, something going on in the water, the usual Jaws kind of shit. And of course it's one of these genetic experimentation things like Barracuda or like Piranha or like, you know, you name it. There's like millions of these fucking films like this. So this thing, it's turned from like, it's actually not a shark or a devil fish. It's an octopus. Uh, and it turns into this, well, it's a hybrid of an octopus and like a dinosaur or some shit. So it's, of course, eating swimmers and whatever else. And this guy here, uh, they're trying to go out there, but the military is trying to, like, stop them from doing it. You know, the usual. Oh, i got to cover this up. And it's classified. It's, you know, Mystery Science makes like, it's a huge joke, especially with that freeze frame at the end where they're laughing and they just go on for, like, 20 minutes doing the fake laughs, which is hilarious. But... I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was an entertaining film. I liked uh, – there's like a black girl that's like an assistant that's got the hots for him. She's like underage, I guess. Uh, although maybe not because I don't know. I think he sleeps with her at some point. <laughs> but, you know, she's pretty young compared to him and the others. Um, you know, it, it's a f- entertaining sort of laid back – uh, almost happy-go-lucky 80s monster film, uh, more than it is a, quote, horror film. Yeah, you've got a little bit of the um, commentary on you know, the government's and politics, trying to fuck you over. You've got a little bit of a half-assed environmental theme you could sort of read into it. But really, it's just a monster movie. You know, it's, it's like a 50s monster movie done in 1984. And as funny as what they did with it was, I don't think it deserved the slagging it got on Mystery Science. It's a better film than that. So... Uh, your turn, since you didn't like it. Uh, um, I don't know. I hate Mystery Science there. Let it be known. I think they serve no purpose um, for me. Um, but I, but Monster Shock is, is enjoyable. I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh, I wasn't going to watch it again for the show. <laughs> but um, it just didn't resonate with me when I saw it initially. Maybe it's better now. I'll give it that. Maybe it's better now that I haven't seen it in so many years. Um, <laughs> so I will just say I I found it entertaining, but not great. So yeah. uh, what you just said makes me want to reassess it. So there, I'll be fine. Yeah. I definitely enjoy it. I think it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's one of his better films, but it's certainly one of his most enjoyable ones. Uh, it doesn't have that ugly taste in your mouth at all. Um, so then he goes on to do one of his most famous films, which you seem to love. I was always kind of iffy on it from day one. Ah. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about going back to the 80s. Um, it's got a good cast. I mean, you got Fiori Argento, the uh, the estranged, if you will, older sister who re- preferred to become a fashion person and not really have anything to do with movies. She did uh, the opening scenes of Phenomena in this, and that was the end of it, I believe. Um, you've got uh, Geretta Giancarlo, otherwise known as Geretta Geretta, otherwise known as Jana Ryan, uh, depending on what film you see her in. She's in stuff like Rats. Um, and of course, as, as chocolate, and she made a point of signing her autograph as chocolate, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> um, 
you know, she's got a good sense of humor. I like her. Uh, Mikael Suave's in it, as, as we had mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show. Bobby Rhodes is in it. Uh, sort of a was he Jamaican, Bermudan? He's, he's from the islands. Uh, you know, he's got a, pimp, right. Tony yep, the Tony the Pimp. It's it's probably his most memorable role. He did pop up in a lot of things around his time as you know bit parts basically, but this is the one everybody remembers him for. Um, Nicoletta Elmi, the little creepy redheaded kid, uh, is in this thing. Uh, Giovanni Fretzo, the annoying little brat from uh, stuff like House by the Cemetery, is in this. Um, Argento did the screenplay along with Bob and the Chichetti again. Claudio Simonetti did the soundtrack, which is bizarre. Demons, demons, demons. Horrible. It's probably one of the worst things that you're composed. Uh, and beyond that, it goes very strange. It's kind of like what Argento was trying to do with opera when he got strangely into heavy metal, and heavy metal does not work as a accompaniment for these sort of films. I'm sorry. I mean, I love the heavy metal horrors that are just, okay, you've got a rock band that got possessed, or, okay, those are great. But when you're trying to put it in the middle of like an Italian horror film, eh, it doesn't work. You know, bands like Steel Grave and shit. No, no, I'm sorry. And Demons was filled with that. You know, it's the same as uh, opera. You know, you got like except an Iron Maiden playing on the soundtrack. I'm like, nah, this doesn't fit. I'm sorry. I love those bands. I love those songs, but not here. Um, what's interesting about it is that he does the sort of sense of abandonment that he brought to Blade in the Dark but puts it into a modern-day city. You know, it's a very modern uh, Germany. I think it's Berlin it's supposed to be. Uh, it's got a very cold feel to it. Uh, all these people get the tickets from Suave, basically, in the mask uh, to go to the opening of this new theater. They go in there. Uh, it's a motley crew. You've got this hooker and pimps. You've got you know these kids, basically, or they're thrill-seekers. You've got some older folks. It's a real mishmash of you know, attendees. And oh yeah, you got this. you got the, the you got the hot set with the blind husband, remember? Yes, right. Who's <laughs> going around fucking everybody in the audience while the guy's sitting there doesn't know it? Um, and he's calling out her name. <laughs> Are you there? Are you there? <laughs> yes, George, I'm here. You see what kind of weird stuff. Right, and why is this blind guy on the fucking movie anyway? But uh, anyway, that, that was like when we saw it Star Wars the other night. It actually had something on there. It was a descriptive dialogue for the blind. And we, I was like, turn it on for a second, see what happens. And it's like the Lucasfilm logo comes up. And the guy's like, a golden logo starts to shimmer silver over the beautiful arches of like, turn this fucking shit off. What are you crazy? I mean, <laughs> if you were blind, see, first of all, why are you watching a movie? But secondly, if you're going to listen to crap like that, how disappointed would you be if you eventually managed to get your sight through surgery or whatever? And you finally mm. saw this stuff like, I thought this person, you know, I thought Jennifer Garner was beautiful. And so she's got that weird chin. I was like, I thought this was really cool. It's a fucking logo for a company. It sucks. You know, it really, it was embarrassing. So anyway, why is this guy in there? Uh, really monster of people there. And they're watching a pretty bad oh, sort oh, of oh, giant slasher. And the, bellig- the belligerent older white guy. Remember him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Like yeah. There was like old Kept, yeah. there, too. Um, so they're all there watching this stupid movie. And it's like a teen slasher movie. I mean, okay, yeah, these kids going to find a demon mask, and they, they put it on. And well, it's no, like, no, 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 no. Oh, I, 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 feel, I feel differently because I think the movie they're watching is these teens digging up the grave of Nostradamus, the seer. Mm-hmm. And that's where they find the mask, which is the same mask that, what's her name, uh, Jaretta puts on. Right. And she takes that's it to the lobby. The, you know, right, in the lobby, yeah. So they're watching scenes that unfold in this movie. And also and they the become real in the lobby. Yeah. They become real in the lobby, yeah. 
And that's the interesting thing about it. And that's what everybody says. Oh, yes, it's really, you know, metatextual. Look how it's happening on a screen and it could happen in a lobby. And wouldn't it be creepy if you went to the theater and that happened to you? And I don't know. It's just, yeah, I mean, the conceit is okay, but the actual breakdown of it, it's entertaining popcorn fluff. You know, there's no question about it. But it's like a bad slasher film to me. I mean, and I love slasher films. It's just like, there's nothing to it. I, there's no substance whatsoever. If you want to go see a bunch of zombies' heads explode and you know people like magically like get, getting that zombie plague and turning into things and ripping each other apart, and then all of a sudden there's a scene where some guy gets on a motorcycle and like rides across the theater on top of a bunch of people's heads and the movies, uh, you know, the seats and everything. Go, to go outside, they get there's a whole scene where they're on a truck. They run into some guys that are like escaping because now the zombie plague has escaped from not only the theater but out into the entire world. And it's like this post-apocalyptic thing all of a sudden. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on in it. But I don't know that it's a good film in any way. I mean, it's entertaining. There's no question it's like likable, but the reputation it has. I mean, if people hated it. I'm like, oh, that was an entertaining film. I liked it enough. But the fact that everybody's like, oh, this is the greatest film. Oh, yeah, this is the best film. No, nah, not by a million miles. It's it's goofy, fun uh, Hollywood fluff in a weird way. It's, it's got that odd, skewed Euro feel to it, but it's more like a Hollywood film, and that's probably why it fails for me. So, uh, but go ahead, since you're the you're a bigger fan, obviously. I don't know. My head just hit the desk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> uh, I like this movie, and uh, um, I like the idea that uh, yeah, I think one one of the problems always has been with this and a couple of Lamberto Bava's later movies is the use of music, the, his choice, this very percussive metal. It's like if I, when I was listening to metal a lot, and I was at a certain point, I was listening to a lot of metal. I wasn't listening to stuff like this. I mean, it's, it's 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 sort of poppy, but not, and it's very percussive. And I yeah. think if he was looking for that percussive sound, why use this kind of music? Right. Um, that being said, um, it it kind of is it's serviceable. You know, it takes you out sometimes of, of parts. Mm-hmm. I liked how you know it's set up well. You know, Michele Suave with the, the the silver half face mask. You don't know what he's doing. What his role is? He's handing out tickets to the Metropole, the theater in Berlin, and, uh, and people are like, you know, these various little interludes. People are having a little thing. They're getting a ticket from the guy, and they show up at the theater. And once there, yeah, we got this wide range, as you described, this wide range of people. And uh, I love the dubbing for Tony the Pimp. For uh, it's a Bobby Rhodes. Uh, I don't yes. know who the hell he was dubbed by. Oh, he's <laughs> like, hey yo, yo, hey yo, put that damn thing down. Yeah, you. It's like what? It's like from a bad Chinese movie. Mm-hmm. Um, very strange. But uh, once he gets scratched on the face by the mask, of course, on the sitting of the theater is when all hell breaks loose. And you know. The bladder effects are really good. I like them. Um, and a, I thought, for the kind of picture it is, I thought there was enough stuff that creeped me out. It takes a lot to creep me out, by the way, folks. Um, like behind the screen, they're watching this movie where they're digging up Nostradamus. It has this really dramatic narration. This is the grave of Nostradamus. Yeah, okay. Yep. But 
the uh, one of the demonized people goes behind the screen and just ripping out somebody's fucking body, and you don't realize until they're ripping them apart and they actually come through the screen. That was very meta. I thought that was very that worked really good for me. Um, when the demons started coming, bursting out of the body and out of the back of the person, was like, oh, this is different. Um, yeah, there are things hit and miss about the movie. You know, I like Siege films. You know, as we discussed yeah, last week with uh, John Carpenter, I really like Siege pictures. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is a bit of that in here, too, I think. Um, this also harkens back to stage right. You're in a theater. How the hell do you get out? But, of course, at this point, we don't realize that this thing has gone worldwide. Right. <clears throat> we just think it's in the theater. I like movies that just burst the fourth wall. We're well into the movie. We're probably heading toward the end. When the, uh, yeah, I know, he's riding the motorcycle with the heroin on the back, and he's just lopping off heads. They don't know what to do. It's like, <laughs> That excitement. There's a little of uh, tension there, like, well, what are we going to do? And what you think is the army helicopter landing on the building, the roof actually crashes through the roof. It's such a well-done scene for me, because it crashes through the roof, literally, hangs there. And that's when we get the full idea that, oh, this is just more than theater. And I like how they try to crawl out. I mean, it was imaginative. Those guys must have been, well, they couldn't have been drinking. They would have been drunk. I don't know what possessed them to come up with this idea. It is so freaking bizarre. So fucking bizarre. So they actually crawl out. While the zombies are, see, they're demons, they're zombies. It's a really weird mix. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they try to crawl out from the theater, and they manage to get to the roof, and that's when we get a better sense of what's going on. And then they meet the people in the the half-track who are trying to make their way. I like it. I, I, um, can you call out performances? No, not really. It's not that kind of film. Everybody's serviceable. Um, Jaretta, you're such a lovely woman. You're so nice. Yes. But you got a career out of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, chocolate too. Couple, yeah, yeah, I know. She was in a couple Never other things. But this was her big. This was the biggest. Um, and she's still milking it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but you can say that about a lot of people. <coughs> yes. But uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I had a lot of problems because I was so disappointed in the sequel, which I was hoping really was was going to. Yeah, and you like the sequel better than the yes, first I one. Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> because I was hoping that they were going to continue this plot or story go on from and yeah. they didn't and what they did was they fucked with us and they gave us something completely different right because if so. they had given us a continue with it it would have turned into the phantasm series and as much mm-hmm. as i love most of the phantasm series and you know i had reggie bannister on the show he's a great guy that was a fun interview uh you know he's i'm just dressed- cool, yeah. I am desperately waiting for the uh, set to come out. I know you have the uh, the one from Europe, but that's actually the Sphere. But I understand they're actually going to put all four of them together finally um, yeah. over here domestically. And, you know, that's a good thing. But who would have wanted to see that again with demons? I don't think it would have worked. Uh, what he did was throw something out of left field, which basically 
became what Romero did with Land of the Dead. It's the same kind of a movie. Uh, basically, you've got this, once again, uh, overly cold, materialistic sort of a thing where you've got this tower that everybody's living in. He's sort of making a half-assed commentary on yuppie society, but without really getting political. It's not like Land of the Dead at all. Um, but it's the same thing where these people are basically in this building. They think, okay, yeah, I've, I've achieved the pinnacle of success. Here I am. And it turns out to more or less become their tomb uh, because, you know, they can't get out of the fucking thing. All these amenities they thought they had become their problem. All these neighbors they thought were keeping them safe become the problem uh, because they have – it's like shivers in a lot of ways. Uh, it's, a, it's a more upscale, yuppified version of Cronenberg's shivers. Uh, this plague just spreads from room to room and building you know, uh, apartment to apartment. Um, and eventually going down to the garage and up to the, you know, you've got children being threatened. You've got, uh, there's a birthday party on one thing. Uh, Curly and Catali Tassoni's in this thing who uh, will always be the girl from Evil Clutch for me. <laughs> I know she hated El Bosco, but uh, it's still my favorite role of hers. And of course, she's in stuff like uh, this and um, what the hell was the one? Opera for Argento and things like that. Uh, Aja Argento's in this thing, which is another plus for me. Uh, Bobby Rhodes is in it once again. Uh, they're basically, instead of this being in the theater this time, one of the girls, I think it's Aja actually, is watching the film, it's the same one that's drama's film. So it actually is sort of a continuation because they're watching that same damn film that's causing the plague on a TV in this high rise, like I mentioned. And it just spreads from there and it really gets into some subversive territory in a lot of ways that the first film did not even try to. Um, and I think part of it is because I don't think Argento was involved in this one. You know, you lose that uh, veneer and the extra money, but it also becomes more of an interesting production because of that. I found it much more claustrophobic and much less cheesy. And while some of the children are fucking annoying, it was great to see them basically threatened, if not killed, by the monsters or become the monsters and be the problem themselves. Uh, so I really, really enjoyed this film. Is it a fantastic film? You know, if you gave people this one and the first one, which one would they probably gravitate for? It's especially if you're talking about a typical American film-going audience. Yeah, they'll probably go for demons and say, ah, oh, this one sucks. But for somebody like me who's got more of a European bent, uh, the first one just is like, yeah, whatever. It's popcorn entertainment, Hollywood. This one works. Uh, I really enjoyed this one for what it is. And again, it's more in line of Land of the Dead, uh, the same kind of a feel without all the politics under it, uh, some of them, but not the same. And it's also just as cold, if not colder, than demons. And the sense of the threat is still there because, you know, who the hell knows what's going on outside the building? You know, presumably it's the same thing you saw at the end of the first one. This is just this one building full of all these rich yuppies that is, you know, can the mother get back to the sun? And, you know, all this shit's going on in there. You know how it is. Um, shivers with less sex and demons with more claustrophobia. Uh, that's what this is. So. Uh, I know you didn't like it, so what's your take? Well, you know, before I go into that, this gives me the idea that uh, one day I would like to do a show on siege zombie films. Too many I love siege films. And there are too many zombie but films, you're see, right. But. Yeah, but there, there's there's a good amount of siege zombie films. And I'm not sure I mentioned a few things. The Horde, which is a French movie years back. Just a great, great movie. And actually, that's got elements of demons too. That's better than demons too. Um, 
I I just wished it was better and a little different. There's a little supernatural. The, the thing was, in Demons, ah, uh, the first one, it was kind of yeah okay. They're watching this movie. There's this this schism of things crossing over between dimensions. You know, it had to be. You had to either accept it or not. But in this it was a little bit. I felt a little bit more supernatural, and I felt. Realism and supernatural just kind of headbutted a little bit. One second, hold your thought. You just hit on exactly the thing that I like about this and didn't like about the first one. It's the first Phantasm film versus Phantasm two or three. In other words, you've got a frightening supernatural based. You know, it's not all because it's also materialistic and going on about that uh, horror film that may actually frighten you, as opposed to an action film with horror trappings, and that's the difference. Mm. So, you mean you meant demons or phantasm? You said phantasm. I mean, well, the same thing. It's the exact same thing. Okay. Demons, the original, is like Phantasm uh, two, three, or maybe even four, whereas Demons two is like Phantasm the original. That's my take okay. on that, and that's probably why I like it better, much better. Hey. <laughs> Some guy on a motorcycle chopping off zombie heads doesn't really work for me. I'm sorry, it's cheesy, but it's just like yeah, whatever. I'm watching a canon film yeah. that doesn't work. <laughs> oh yeah, God forbid a canon film that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> so we're we're up to Midnight Killer now, correct? Uh, yes, Midnight Killer, which I have really not seen, I don't believe. Uh, it's also known as Mororaya Mezzanote, or You'll Die at Midnight. Uh, it's, let's see, he did the Eternal Dinote. It's, it's an Italian TV series, basically. He directed six episodes, uh, which included... I, uh, I, I saw Midnight Killer, though. Did you? I, yeah, yeah, I actually have it. I have it. Um, it's a very... It's a shot for TV. It's a... Uh, a little tedious, actually. It's surprising coming off the two Demons films. You know, whatever our our opinions are of these movies, united or not, but uh, coming off the two Demons films, he goes right into Midnight Killer, which was for RAI TV, which actually he started working a lot for TV after this. Uh, but it's it's weird. It's uh, this splashes of. Uh, Nudity, some violence, throat slittings. It's, um, do you remember Forever Night, the whole subplot about the caller into the radio station? Yes. And, and, uh, well, it was Nigel Bennett. Well, it was Nigel Bennett, yes. I, there are elements of that. I got the feeling they were probably watching that, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm not quite sure. I just it didn't work for me. Uh, there were there was quite a bit of fleshy women skin on view. <laughs> I think they were trying to to make up for the fact that well we don't have a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it winds up being a very tepid thriller, unfortunately. Yeah. But then we go to Eternal Ter- Donate. Yeah, and again, uh, Italian TV series did six episodes. Uh, Edi Morte. Morte uh, which I think is like the close of death. Uh, heavy metal is actually the name of the title. Uh, Bonafine Emilio Principio. Um, 
what's that good ending and uh, the first I don't know the first happiness I think uh, Gibetto Rosso uh, you know red red laughter Imambito uh, Rapito uh, the the something rapid baby I think and Babbo Natale uh, birth of you know whatever Babbo is I have no idea uh, I've not seen any of those either. Um, but from here, okay, he's done a couple TV movies now coming off of the Demons things. He goes and does Delirium, which is an interesting film. Uh, another Simon Boswell score. Uh, the story's by uh, Luciano Martino. Uh, Serena Grandi's in this thing. Now, you have Barry Nicolodi's in it, which is good for me. You have David Brandon again, who's carrying over from the, uh, we mentioned him in the uh, Swabby stage fright. Uh, George Eastman's in it. You know, like I said, he was a regular with uh, Mustard Chasey. And Capuchin is in this, you know, from the Pink Panther and What's New Pussycat. Uh, obviously aging at this point. But but Serena Grandi was – she got involved or was always involved with a producer. It was almost like Sophia Loren and Carlo Ponti. I'm not sure who the producer was at this point, uh, but he was obviously a money guy over there. And her whole shtick was that she was a very zoftig woman, uh, you know, sort of attractive. I wouldn't call her, like, you know, unattractive in terms of looks. Uh, but, you know, to me, it just seemed kind of average. She, she reminded me of my grandmother, Rose. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, uh, and, you know, she had enormous breasts, which is probably why most people, including yourself, are, like, really hot for her. Uh, I remember seeing her <laughs> in, in Miranda for uh, Tinto Brass, so I love Tinto Brass films. Uh, but she always seemed like a, a overweight uh, low class take on you know how Sophia Loren used to do those roles all the time where she was like the the swarthy peasant girl that didn't take any shit from anybody and she's always like balancing a wash basket and a baby on her hip. That's Serena Grandi. She's a big titted, fatter version of that. Uh, so I really had no appeal for this whatsoever. I really, you know, I, I can see that people would find her attractive, but so I was like, nah. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, she's in this as. I don't know if she was actually – I think she was supposedly a uh, nudie model. You know, it's like the, the, the whole subtext rides, goes around porno magazines at the time. Like I guess it's equivalent of Playboy or Penthouse. And she either runs the magazine, which I think she does at least at this point. Yeah, yeah. Or magazine. Uh, she was in the magazine or both. You know, Maybe she was a starlet that oh. rose up and took over the company. Um, and she's got a next-door neighbor, this fella – I think it's Vonnie Corbellini – who's a creepy kid that I think he was in a wheelchair, wasn't he? Uh, who has yeah. this thing for her. He, like, peeps on her because he's, like, living in the next yard. And she'll, like, you know, sunbathe topless by her pool or whatever the hell. And he's like, ah, yes, oh, I watch you every day with my binoculars and, you know, beat off or whatever. It, it's just kind of weird and freaky. And it's it turns into a sort of jalo. But most people admit that it really doesn't quite work. There's a lot of atmosphere to it. Uh, it's... You know, kind of refreshing and quirky to see. Oh, look, here's a Jollo set around a men's magazine. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting, you know, sleazy take on things. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure it works. Do I like it? Is it very watchable? Yes, it's extremely watchable. I've seen it a couple of times. Uh, but is it a good film? I don't know. I mean, it's one of those hit or miss. Like you mentioned, Bob is very uh, – Lamberto, anyway, is very hit or miss. This is kind of on the borderline. It straddles the fence between, yeah, this is entertaining, but I don't know. Yeah, something about it is just not right. Uh, so I'm kind of divided on it. So how about you? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I – I, 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know you love Serena Grandi, so. 
I like Serena Grande. I don't like every big titted woman. Um, oh, please. <laughs> no, it's true. Okay. Come on. I, I, I like Serena Grande. You, down the you like more big like There you go. I mean, you know, no, some people I, like I men. No, no. Serena Grande has a certain <laughs> look. She has a certain look with her eyes and, yeah, and her look. large, enormous breasts. <laughs> her breasts are very nice. They're very perform fitting. Oh yeah, but, they are. <laughs> but uh, and I know, understand she got very... fatter afterwards when she got married. So <laughs> she did. She did. She did. Um. Uh. Yeah. So she's done tinder brass. She's done. She's done a few things for tinder. She's been in like uh, five or six pictures, um, mm-hmm. so for this, and supposedly Liberto himself was keen on her. Yeah, you know, hot on her, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the movie. It's got problems, you know, and, and she's fine. She, I, my take on it was Pussycat. She was like a porn actress that now yeah. owns and runs. Pussycat magazine, because she used to not only be the lesbian lover of Cappuccino, right, and uh, uh, and probably more, but she took it over from Cappuccino. So Cappuccino doesn't yep. like her; she's pissed at her anyway. So, um, yes, there's the creepy guy in the wheelchair, um, which actually is pretty well done. Because at first we think he's a creepy kid in the wheelchair. A real sick fuck, but he actually yep. may not be as sick as we think. Yeah, he's at least probably a red herring, let's put it that way. <laughs> he's a red herring, yes, thank you. Um, George Eastman, surprise, surprise, is in a throwaway small role. Yeah. As like her, as 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 Serena's former lover, and they have sweet love in a in a in an outdoor pool, and then he disappears. So I'm like, <laughs> what was that all about? He just um, wanted to give him a sweet brandy. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, um, she's got the big teats. So That's all it's about. George is the big guy, so he it was yes, fine yes. for that. Um, <laughs> um, there's a lot of red herrings. There's an, uh, Daria Nicolodi's in it, and and she uh, this period in her career, she was doing a lot of throwaway parts, and actually, yeah. this is better part for her. Than we've seen in a while, yeah. And uh, but yeah, then the red herrings start to come upon uh, David Brandon doing his hissy fit shit thing again. Yep. Um. Um. Yeah, I understand he was pretty problem, difficult. He was actually an English actor, and I heard that he was kind of yeah, difficult to work with. Actor, yeah. I think it was difficult to work with with everybody, but they kept hiring him. Yeah. Um. The thing is. And this is open for interpretation, depending on how deep you want to get with this. Is that prior to the killers, the killers, uh, approaching his victims to attack them and then murdering them, he sees, or she sees, the faces and bodies of the victims as giant insects. Very strange. Uh, it takes you out of the movie because you're not yep. quite sure where, what a Lamberto was really trying to go for. I mean, we can get very, very deep with this, but we're not going to because we have a few other pictures we want to tackle in this filmography. 
Yeah, and I um, thought it didn't see, work like you're kind of hinting at, kind of like Stendhal syndrome for Argento. Yeah. It, I know what he's trying to do and what he's trying to say. It's just was it necessary and does it really work? And like you said, it pulls you out of it too much. It does pull you out of it. Although you get to see a lot of Serena Grandi topless and nude, so it might be worth it. <laughs> so next movie. All right, so now we move on to some films that I actually like very much, and a lot of people don't. Uh, he started doing the Brivido Jalo series uh, on TV. They're all TV movies, believe it or not, considering that some of these are actually not incredibly bloody, but it's not the kind of thing you would ever expect to see on American TV at any point. You know, Not the 70s, not the 90s. Uh, it's, it's much darker and sometimes sexier and sometimes um, – more gruesome. Uh, so the first one is Dinner with a Vampire. Uh, it's probably the lightest one of the four, actually. Um, these four, Darno Sacchetti wrote it with uh, Lucio Martito and Baba, uh, which is kind of the pattern here. Uh, these couple of actors, they get, oh, look, we just want an audition to go and be in some shitty horror movie, and we get to stay in this castle out there with the director. And, of course, the, it turns out to be, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm a vampire. <laughs> and uh, he does a weird thing. He says, you know what? You guys, uh, I'll give you a, a thing. You can kill me, and then you know you get whatever. I don't know if you get the part or you get the house or whatever. I forget what it was. Uh, but it's it's strange. It's very atmospheric. The castle's great. Uh, you've got George Hilton, who's a Jalo star in this thing. Uh, otherwise, mostly nobodies after that. Uh, mostly these kids. Um, I remember really liking parts of this, and I think this is actually one my wife liked a lot. There's a bit more, I don't want to say comedy, but it's got a lighter feel than you would expect. Uh, and yet, it's dark enough not to be like, oh god, that was just a goofy comedy. It's like, no, okay, it works on both levels if you're not too serious about either one. You don't want it to be too goofy, you don't want it to be too scary, it's kind of lighthearted and in the middle. I guess kind of like Monster Shark in a way, uh, but you know, as more of a gothic horror sort of thing. So I liked it. Um, I don't know if you want to, you know, to go through all four of the Jalo Brutas and then just take them together. Do you want to do it that way? Or do you want to go one? one? All right, so then he does one called The Ogre, which is actually probably my favorite, uh, also known as Demons 3. My favorite, too, actually, yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Palombanco's in it, who was in uh, a couple of Fulci films towards the end, uh, and Lamberto himself. Simon Boswell does the music. Uh, this one girl, she's a writer. Uh, she writes like horror novels, some shit. So she takes her family out uh, to some like crappy old rundown villa out in the backwoods of Italy. Uh, to work on a new book. I don't know what the hell the deal was there. But nonetheless, while she's there, she starts having all these weird nightmares that turn out to be something from her childhood. And, you know, there's something going on there in the villa. And is it really – is she causing it? Is there some kind of like thing coming out of her, or is it really there in the first place? In a way, it reminds me of a less gruesome and much, much more effective take on Castle Freak, which we'll get to when we start talking uh, the Full Moon films. Um, he does Until Death, uh, which was uh, – let's see. Who the hell's in this? Oh, they were Brandon again. There you go. And a girl, uh, Joya Scala, who's pretty but kind of annoying in a way. Uh, and this is more straightforward, almost uh, Hitchcockian sort of a thing. Uh, they basically uh, were lovers, and they killed her husband years ago. Uh, and since then, they've been running this hotel, basically. 
And all of a sudden, this guy shows up, and he knows a little bit more than you'd expect about the events of the of their past history, let's say. Uh, and it kind of starts making twists and turns and gets a little ugly, but it's a thriller more than a horror film. And the last one of this series was Graveyard Disturbance, which is my second favorite of the series. Um, a lot of people hate this one. Uh, Basically, Beatrice Ring from Zombie 3 is in it, and I always like her when I see her and stuff. Uh, pretty French girl. Uh, Simon Boswell does music again. And basically, these teenagers, uh, you know, and they're basically just kind of scummy, kind of like in House of Clocks. You know, they're going around and shoplifting and you know, causing all kinds of shit. And they wind up in a cemetery, and, you know, somebody, I don't know, they go to a bar or some crap, and the guy says, yeah. You know, I dare you to uh, like where with the spider, I guess. I dare you to stay the night in this uh, crappy old you know cemetery, whatever the hell this uh, ossuary crypt kind of thing. And uh, you know, if you get through it, you're gonna win. I don't know what you know, gold or some shit. He was gonna, who knows who's gonna give them? And they take the bet, and then it turns out to be, oh wait, are we really already dead? You know, one of those kind of things. Uh, and you know, the ride of getting there is all the fun, of course. It's stupid in some ways, yes. It's got elements of like a slasher film and all that kind of thing because it's from you know nineteen eighty seven ninety eight. But I liked it. I thought it was very atmospheric. It was fun. Um, yeah, there's a little bit too much of that kind of thing where they run around a house all the time, kind of like Zombie Five Killing Birds. Uh, all less, you know, dopey teens explore a house for four hours and maybe vaguely creepy stuff happens somewhere. But this is more atmospheric than that. So. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun in its own way. Uh, not incredibly you know, intelligent. It's Italian horror. It's Italian horror of its period. They tend to be a little bit dopey. This is like the film mirage period, but I certainly enjoy it. So those are the four in the Jello, uh, Brivido Giallo series. So what did you want to say about those four? Uh, well, I thought Dinner with a Vampire was uh, disappointing for me. Uh, it was, was it all the comedy? Comical. Yeah. Well, not comical. I mean, it's weird, you know. If you're guys, if you're familiar with Italian cinema, especially movies that are horror films with comedy, that's very strange. Yeah. And the the tone was uneven, but it was back and forth. Um, but George Hilton was fine. It was odd seeing him as a vampire, um, having seen him as pretty much the hero in so many giallos. Mm-hmm. Um, so, eh. The Ogre was one I really, really, really liked. The first time I saw it, I still do. It's a very quiet movie, a very uh, creepy movie. It reminded me in parts of uh, Pubiavati, uh Casa del Sinistro, uh, whatever it was. Or oh, you know what uh, else it reminds me of? Just jumping in for a second. What? It reminds me of uh, Witchery, the uh, Lindsay film, when we discussed the Lindsay films a couple well, of weeks possibly. back. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I can see that a little bit. I, I really like it. I think it's an unsung Lambretto Bava film. Um, I think one of the reasons why it didn't go over as large as it did is the cast. You know, it was done done again for TV, like you mentioned, and mm-hmm. it's got minor people in the cast, but it's very well done. It's very well cast for whoever's mm-hmm. in it, and um, I liked it. It's got, you know, it, it's got enough of. Uh, Equal parts fairy tale, equal parts creepy, yeah, ambiance, and um, I think it works really well. And if there's a late period Lombardo Bava movie that probably needs to be on Blu-ray or DVD, that's definitely one of them. Yeah, that's true. 
So how about uh, the other Until two? Death. Yeah. Until Death, I, 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 funny thing about Until Death, I always thought it was a remake in parts of Shock. You know, not entirely, but there are definitely elements that were in shock that appear again yeah. until death in different ways. Um, which again is is a, is a storyline that doesn't appeal to me. I don't know. I, I don't shock mixed with double indemnity. I would think double indemnity. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I don't have any personal um, life experience. Like, oh, I can't see that kind of thing. It just doesn't <laughs> appeal to me. And uh, <laughs> that's good, right? No, it's true. I it just I don't find it appealing. I don't know. You sure work. you haven't killed anybody? You know, for your <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you on national radio. Um, graveyard disturbance. I did like. Um, it it was fun. It, it was uh, you know it it did not resonate with me years later. Like probably I have to say. The Ogre, Demons 3, The Ogre. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a problem, I wanted to go back to that one one more time, but one of the problems with that having uh, long-time success uh, with fans, maybe, I, I, I have to say 98% of the people who like Italian horror probably never even heard of or seen this movie is because, you know, the, the retitlings of this picture. Yeah. What is the ogre? What is that? I don't want to see that. Or Demons Three? Oh, it's just another one of those kind of movies, and it's not. Yeah. So uh, until somebody comes along and realizes what they have, uh, they'll probably remain obscure. So then he does another series of telefilms, of which they've never been released over here, so I haven't seen them. Uh, Prince of Terror was one of them. It's the out the Tennessee series. Uh, the man who didn't want to die. Um, yeah. School of Fear, <laughs> also known as yes. and Eyewitness, uh, which is Testimonial Acolare, which was actually the same thing that uh, the title of an Argento film that we had discussed uh, way it's back in week one. I've seen yeah. it. The original was good with Argento. I don't know about this one, though. It's a remake. Uh, out of all those pictures that I saw them a few years ago, I saw them about, okay, let's say I saw them about 92 or thereabouts. I saw all these movies. And Eyewitness is the best of the batch, and it's not saying much. Um, <laughs> production, no, production quality was really down from the previous series. Um, uh, I, I just, I was, eh. Not, you know, I go to these things wanting to like them. Yeah, exactly. Prince of Terror. Right, and Prince of Terror was a bit of a knockoff of Black Sunday, which we're going to get to next with a, something very interesting. Yeah. But um, Prince of Terror was a bit of a knockoff of Black Sunday, but not entirely so. You know, also they're working for TV and they have to keep the budget down. Um, but the, out of these movies, uh, and basically they were all thrillers. I mean, School for Fear wasn't entirely bad. Well, Eyewitness is the best of the batch, and it's a, a lightly, thinly veiled remake of the same thing that Argento had done in uh, his series years before. Yeah. And speaking of remakes, uh, the next thing that basically he does uh, is Mask of the Demon, otherwise known as La Machera del Demonio, which might seem really familiar if you remember that his father 
did La Machera del Demonio back in 1960, otherwise known as Black Sunday. Here it's called Demons 5, The Devil's Veil. How, I don't know how they have so many Demons films, and they all have the same numbers. They're all three and five, uh, but uh, nonetheless. Well, you know, because I, think, I think because, not to cut you off here, because I, I, I don't want you to lose your thought process, but I think Demons did really, really well on video and in the theaters, better than right. I thought they were going to do. And I think once I hit VHS, they were like, holy shit, we got all these Italian horror movies. Let's call them demons. Because they figured <laughs> they could sell them. It was just like the zombie series. It was like so many zombie films. You know, zombie 3, Zombie 4. Oh, yeah. Zombie 5, it's the yeah. same thing. Yep. The, the Fuji zombie, you know, you have Zombie 4, Bloody Aftermath, Zombie Goes to School, <laughs> Zombie Was Your Mother. You know, all these things just go on and on so anyway, I have not seen this one. I don't think it ever came over here, oh. uh, but I imagine you have. So uh, obviously, it's got to be a remake of some sort of his father's film, uh, Black Sunday. So go ahead. Well, this is a strange movie. Um, yes, it is a remake of Black Sunday, sort of. It has a bunch of uh, adventurers and uh, skiers uh, in the Italian Alps, and a. Uh, Avalanche traps them into a certain vicinity, vicinity, and where they find a village unchanged by time. So they, you know, people, buildings, etc. And a further avalanche makes several of these group members fall below ground level to a submerged church. Right. And there's where they find. Um, is Anya, you know, the same thing as before. Right. Um, uh, it's bloodier, more gorier. Uh, you know, it's basically, we have the survivors of the, the group, the adventure group, trying to get out of this land trapped in time. And, of course, uh, you know, it's more than just a witch at this point. It's like, you know, zombie-esque kind of things going on. It, it moves at a fast pace, a good clip. Um, I, I could swear I saw Michele Suave in a bit part in this movie, but I noticed he doesn't appear in other credits, but I think he is in this, yeah, however busy. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Some A son makes, remakes his father's most acclaimed work. 30 years later, whatever the amount it was. And the funny thing is that he worked with his father, so he knows these things, how movies work. And yet he makes this fantastical movie set in some unnamed European location and such a bizarre, convoluted story that's wrapped up in you know, oh, we're stuck, you know, and, and there was an avalanche, and there's another avalanche. And, <laughs> you know, there's the Anya Katja thing going on there. The woman's quite pretty. I forgot who she was. I'm sorry. But um, she's pretty and busty. It's a, it's a thing. Um, she's kind of vampiric, but also when she attacks people, they become zombie-esque. So it's kind of like the beginning of the fast movie zombie thing. So is it a success, successful film? 
No, not really. And I have to say, up to this point, of any of the movies made since 87, the only one I'd really like to see, probably on DVD or Blu-ray, is again, as I just mentioned, The Ogre, because I think it's a really good picture. So from here, he basically, I hate to say ends his career, but there's only two exceptions to, he has a bunch of fantasy films. There's Fantagiro films, there's about five or six of them, uh, stuff like The Dragon Ring and Princess Elysia. No, I have not. Uh, Pirates Blood Brothers, I mean, there's there's a lot of these things. Uh, So if you've seen them, go ahead and mention it. Oh, the Fantagiros are quite well done. Actually, I have to say, um, please don't crucify me. I think that Lamberto uh, had finally found something he was really comfortable making. Uh, the Pentagero are they involve shapeshifters. Uh, I don't know. Was it was Game of Thrones? Does that? Does that game? I don't know. I don't watch that. Um, <laughs> But but it involves shapeshifters and involves princesses and princes and kings. Very well done. Um, each series is about like four to five hours long. Um, very well shot, opulent, great costumes. Franco Nero shows up in the second series. I think it was Fantagiro 2 um, as a king. Um, I actually watched these things, and I enjoyed them. Um, I think he had fun making them. I think somehow there were co-productions, maybe with Germany, if my my memory serves correct, which would explain a lot that they kept doing it. The Dragon Ring was another one. It wasn't a Fantagero. Princess Elysia was different from Fantagero, but he went back. Because the first Fantagero was like 91, and the last one was like number 5, 96, which is like not too long ago. So, uh, but he keeps making these medieval fantasy things. But Body Puzzle is in there. Yes, that's what I was going to say. His last good film is Body Puzzle, uh, which was originally just known as Puzzle over there, but they wanted to give you a hint of what it was uh, in this country. You could, you, oh, look, it's a slasher film. There you go. Um, basically, Joanna Pakula's in this, uh, who is in stuff like The Kiss and Warlock the Armageddon. A uh, very pretty South African woman with uh, very feline features. Tom Saranya shows up in it again. Johnny Carco uh, shows up once again as police chief. Uh, Erica Blanc, of all people, uh, comes back basically out of retirement. She hasn't done anything since the 70s, you know, probably the mid-70s, uh, as a doctor in this. You know, kind of a bit part, but all right. And Javon Lombardo-Dice does a really amusing part. I talked to him about it when uh, we had the show, and it was hilarious because I'm like, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's like, all I remember is that I was gay. He's <laughs> so very, uh, very, um, I guess, wildly, and that's probably the best way to put it. Uh, kind of lots of flourishes. He runs this sort of carriage house uh, that's involved in this whole jello sort of a thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of murders. Basically, the reason it's called body puzzle or puzzle is that Every uh, victim has, it turns out, as I discovered, and this is giving it away a little bit, uh, a transplanted organ from the same guy. Uh, so this person is going around and killing them all and you know, taking all the <laughs> bits and remaking, I guess, this gay lover who is dead. Um, 
And there's a cop who, uh, you know, like I said, uh, Garko, who gets involved with this woman who was divorced, and she's also involved with the killer. You know, they're kind of targeting her as well. Uh, but, you know, for this time period especially, this is the early 90s now, it's very, very effective. I mean, I know a lot of people don't like it, but to me it felt a lot like um, – I wouldn't say less gruesome, but less effective in some ways, less atmospheric, but pretty damn good uh, along the lines of uh, Blade in the Dark. It's like he tried to do Blade in the Dark again, and while it's not as you know isolated and atmospheric and doesn't have the same kind of soundtrack and it doesn't have the same kind of settings, she's still got a really nice spread. Uh, the place where Giovanni works, this carriage house, is really nice. There's a lot of twists and turns. It feels more like a jaw than anything you've seen since Deep Red. Um, you know, I really like this one. A lot of people don't, uh, but I always thought it was one of the best of the very end of the uh, Italian uh, cult film uh, era. Because you know, we're talking about '92 here. There wasn't too much after this. Um, I really enjoyed this one, and I think he kind of, if he's going to go out, he pretty much went out on a bang here. Um, so, how about you? What's your take on this one? I didn't think it was horrible. I thought it was okay. Uh, I was expecting a lot more. I enjoyed the, the jello trappings and the revitalization of them. Uh, what, what year was this? This is like 92. So, uh, good cast. You know, I liked the. Was it Joanna Pacola, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Serrano again, correct? Yep. And, uh, and uh, some creepy. Jenny Garko. Yeah, Jenny Garko. And then some creepy. Creepy, uh, some some good actors and supporting parts being creepy, which is you know we're we're in prime Euro horror territory when they creep you a little bit. You know? Yep. Yep. Um, the, you you described the story pretty pretty accurate. You know, it's uh, this guy's assembling parts. Uh, it's it's well done. I think we I think with some judicial cutting and. Uh, Fine-tuning of scenes. It could have been uh, more effective. Some stuff yeah. could have been. Um, I think coming off of a bunch of TV movies and going on, this was a theatrical, and going on to another bunch of TV movies, uh, he probably, maybe the sense of editing was like a little, a little lost, but I like it a lot. I don't love it. I probably, I would have to say for me, his last successful two films, probably Delirium, Photos of Joy, and The Ogre. This would probably be a close third. Body Puzzle can't be discounted. Now, he did do Ghost Sun. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when that? I saw when I met Claudia Cataldi-Sani, I was talking because, you know, Lombardo Bob was there. And I was saying, oh, yeah, you know, did some films of him, whatever. And I was like, yeah, you haven't done anything for a while. And she made a point of like saying, oh, well, we did Ghost Son. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> I tried to forget about that one. Uh, it's, you know what it reminds me of? It's, it's reminds me of Razorback, of all things, uh, because it's set mm-hmm. down in the outback, at least in part. And you know, you've got, I think, a bunch of Aussie actors in it. I was not a fan of this thing. It is pretty bad. Basically, and once again, you get this thing with the child. It's a yuppie thing. Um, these two 
the guy, the husband, died in a, a car accident, and uh, the widow ends up staying uh, with their – they've got like a maid there, and she's like an orphan or something, and so they stay on a farm together, and oh, by the way, now I'm mysteriously pregnant, and wait, I think, oh, my dead husband's uh, body you know, is in the ghost. So once again, he's going back to shock territory. And I don't know. This is this is the kind of things that yuppies worry about. I don't care. There's no impact on my life. It's I, I just despise this whole bourgeois. I, I don't know. It's so not me. You know, I'd, I'd rather. I mean, what are you gonna say? I'd rather like burn a church or something. It's just like it, it, this kind of oh, thing disgusts wow. me about people. No, Dude, seriously, this is the kind crazy, of thing that disgusts guy. me about people. <laughs> it's like I see this you're crazy like, bastard. I can't believe you said that. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm a blackmailer. Uh, this this kind of like Midwestern, you know, family values bullshit, and I'm worried about keeping my you know fancy schmancy apartment on the you know the Upper East Side here, and you know go fuck yourself. I mean, I really don't care about this shit. Take your beamer and stick it up your ass. So that's the kind of vibe I got off this film, and it's just like instant. Instant, like my nose crinkled. I'm like, ugh, this is awful. And I did try to forget it. So I, when she kept bringing it up, I was amused. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I'm not gonna say anything to you, but yeah, that's the last thing I would have brought up for you. So go ahead. What's your take on this one? Well, well, I I, I interviewed the uh, again. <laughs> I interviewed her. Uh, it was a really good interview. Uh, it was for a magazine that folded right after I did it, and then nobody wanted to buy it. And so it sits in the archives somewhere. And But it was a really good interview. I got some really good intelligent observations about things. I really liked talking to her. And one of the last things we covered was the movie she had just finished, which was Ghost Song. And, you know, this is Coralina I'm talking about. And I hadn't, you know, of course I hadn't seen it. She just finished shooting it. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. And she's going on and on and on. I'm like, all right, cool. So I, I see Ghost Son, like, I don't know, two years later. I was like, what a piece of shit. Because it it seemed to me to be disappointing. It was, it was you know, like, <laughs> no, no. I, I, let me put it into a more accurate term here. Sometimes a filmmaker is aware that his, his past and his best work is behind him. Right. And it and it comes across, and 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 that's what this movie felt to me. It was like I know some of these, I know some of these people, some of the actors in the movie are capable of better work. That's for sure. As far as <laughs> actors go, well, as far as actors go, you know, acting acting is a tough thing. I know. I I used to do a couple of acting things back in the day, and. I played a cop once. It's a funny story. <laughs> so, yeah, I know it was the role, but um, um, so acting. I'm sure acting is tough, and 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 you know it's hard to you know unless you're talking like low low. What's that guy? They keep releasing his movies at really expensive prices. Uh, Duke Mitchell. Yeah, those movies suck. And he oh, was on, not funny. good. He was terrible, but they're, they're funny. funny. But come on, you want to spend thirty-five dollars for a Duke Mitchell movie? No, <laughs> no. But okay, enough said. But uh, uh, but yeah, like Coralina. There's a couple other people in that cast that have done good work. I'm sure capable of more. But 
And then we're at Lombardo Bava, who's done some good work, capable of more. I got the feeling watching this that, like, he knew this, he was stuck in something. I don't know whether it was the material or maybe his producers. You could, you know, they were shooting in a foreign country to them, which probably had something to do with it. Maybe not comfortable with their assistance or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so Ghost Son has, if we were going to do the Mystery Science Theater version of this, Ghost Son is huge. <laughs> Sucks. <coughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a piece of shit. You wanted it to be better. And you know what? He didn't work for a few years until recently. So, uh, anything else you want to say about that? Go, son, no. Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, so, basically, that's it. I mean, like I said, he went into this long run of doing Fantagiro style pictures, and he's, so far as I know, still working in television. It's just, that's, it's kind of like with Suave. I mean, well, he doesn't really do anything of interest to the uh, cult film community at this point. Um, but he was so, a very nice man when I met him not too long ago. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, he's great. I liked him. Um... That's about it, really. Uh, so, yeah, there's nothing else to say with these two guys, so I guess we might as well go to the wrap-up. Uh, just letting you know, next week we'll be doing the podcast of The Blind Dead, where we talk the films of Amanda de Osorio. Uh, in the short-lived but much-beloved Spanish horror scene, after Paul Nashi and perhaps the more internationally inclined James Franco, uh, one name stands out above all the others, Amanda de Osorio. Uh, starting off as a documentarian and veering off briefly into adult film, DeSorio is known on these shores for quirky late-night favorites, Night at the Saucers, Fangs of the Living Dead, and Demon Witch Child. But without a doubt, his most famed creation is one of those zombified agents of repression, those soullessly evil enemies of the living, the Knights Templar, better known as the Blind Dead. Uh, helming four films of fairly consistent quality and suffused with all the grim fatalistic atmosphere the Iberian horror film is known for, DeSorio would both share actors with and lose films to the uh, aforementioned Nashi and Franco before terminating his decade and a half in cinema after one final disappointment. So join us as we delve once more into the grim world of Spanish horror and talk Amando de Osorio. That's next week at 7 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. Uh, the, what is it, the 31st? No, wait, this is the 31st. Uh, so I guess it's the week after that, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so. Doc Savage's intros are available as a thesis, should you wish to purchase them. Just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, any other, uh, <laughs> on that note, any other sage words of wisdom to offer? Or uh, do we just leave our audience to go off and play some black metal? And, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> thank, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the careers of uh, Michele Suave and Lamberto Bava, they did some, some really good classic films. And then we covered some of their not-so-classic. But so that you know they're out there. I think that's the other thing. Even though we didn't like them, you may. So... It's good yeah. that you know his stuff is out there. Please try to track him down. Um, it's all the eye of the beholder, but I uh, hope you enjoyed this show. Thanks for listening. All right, and that's what it's all about. So uh, here we go to the outro, and see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our little chat about the films of Lombardo Mava and Gilswabi. Uh Join us again next week to talk Amando Di Osorio. Uh, those of you who'd like to join us on here, uh, 
uh, comments, suggestions, or if you're in a transition, you can drop us a line at weirdscenes1.wordpress.com or our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1. Weird Scenes of the Goldmine brought to you by the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Quicksilver card, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. It's easy. That's just the way I like it. The Quicksilver card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh. Capital I One like Bank, it, USANA. Uh-huh. 